Okay. Has we received any apologies? None. None. Okay. Thank you. Uh, any declarations of interest, financial or other interests, uh, members are meeting as applicable? No. Thank you. Uh, Chairperson's business. First thing, uh, Northern Ireland Affairs Committee informal meeting re the Northern Ireland Protocol. I had intended uh, to chair the informal meeting for the Chairperson of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee and the Northern Ireland Protocol today. Uh, due to the comments made by the head of the or the chair of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, uh, Simon Hoare, I indicated my unwillingness to meet with him, uh, and, and again I took advice and guidance on that particular view. And also, one of the items on the agenda was referring to the uh, court case that both Jim Allister and I are involved in, and I didn't think it was appropriate either to be chairing that meeting or be attending that meeting when uh, the substantial issues on the agenda were based on the court case, uh, even though it was an informal meeting. So I indicated that I would not be taking part in the meeting, and I asked Colin McGrath uh, from the Executive Office whether he would be willing to take over the uh, meeting, and he said no. It's intermittent. It's coming and going. Is it? Okay. Is that better? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, here you are. Okay, thanks. Uh, sorry, Chair. If, if members are continuing to have any problems with this, just would you let me know um, what we might do is log off and back on again, and that might help. Because, oh no, it's, it's Peter, you're also, I mean, Peter, can you, you all hear me? On. I'm sure all the members are feeling it and hearing it the yes. same. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, could you all mute yourselves if you're not speaking? I think. I'm sorry, sorry, Pat. What what did you just say? I said you, your sign was also coming and going there, Peter. So, and I just was asking if other members finding it the same. They do. Um, I think. Look, if that if, if that continues to be a problem, uh, if you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, uh, what we may do is log off and on. So, do members text me or or let me know if you're having problems with the signs. Thanks. Sorry, Chair. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I was going to say. I uh, just want to tell you that the meeting has not taking place and has now been will be rescheduled for later in the summer or early autumn. Are we content to note? Yep. yep. Okay. Okay, and sorry, I would just say, Chair, that's, I'm truly content for you to take that decision, but um, uh, I think it's worth uh, reflecting, if you're corresponding with the Chair of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, um, that you're, those are your reasons for not taking the meeting, as far as I can, you're perfectly entitled to them, but they're not, Chair, those aren't reasons that are agreed by the Finance Committee, and, and I'm not in any way suggesting you, you at a personal level or, or a party political level, can't raise those objections or, or use that as a rationale for not proceeding with the meeting, but they aren't committee reasons, if you see what I mean. Yes, I, I made that, I, I, I expressed that view directly to Simon Hoare. Okay. Okay. Next item on the agenda freedom of information requests during the recess. It is normal practice for committees to delegate authority to the chairperson and the deputy chair chairperson during periods of recess to submit views on the releasing of withholding of information of any non-routine contentious freedom of information requests received. The committee would be advised of any such request, the views expressed by the chairperson or the deputy chairperson and the response issued by the FOI unit at the first available meeting following the recess period. The committee has usually previously agreed to the delegation of authority in this regard at the appropriate meetings ahead of each recess. Are we content to agree? Content and agreed. Uh, draft minutes of proceedings on the 29th and 30th of June. The draft minutes of the Finance Committee meetings on the 30th of June are at page 7. Our members are content these are an accurate record. Agreed. 
Uh, draft minutes of the Finance Committee on the 29th of June are at page 13. Members are content that draft minutes are an accurate record of proceedings. Are we content? Content. And there are no matters arising. Uh, if we keep the members in the spotlight, the next item on the agenda is item number six, Committee Report and Independent Fiscal Review for Northern Ireland. And we saw the, uh, the great work that the clerk had done and the sort of the work from Jim Allister and the, uh, the additions from Matthew uh, last week. Uh, members are asked to note the response from the Fiscal Council on its work programme at page 18, which indicates that the Council is developing an MOU with the Department, and they appear to indicate that a report on the budget for 21-22 will be produced during the consultation period. Members, are we content to note? Noted. The Committee will now consider its report on Independent Fiscal Council for Northern Ireland at page 23. I will ask each member if you have the opportunity to review the amendments to the report as agreed at the meeting on the 29th of June, which are listed in the clerk's covering note. And do any members have any further comments they wish to make on the report, or are members content to move to agreed report as amended? Comments? Chair, I'm I, 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 I content with the, the report apart from uh, one, well, it happens in two places, and, it's, and it, it would just be good to get clarity on it. Um, my understanding was that we had agreed to uh, not to make it seem like the recommendation of the committee was that um, the appointments should be subject to confirmation by the assembly, but that per Jim Alster's um, suggestion, we make clear that it, it should form part of it. The public appointments process should be material to it, but. Um, it, it still looks in the drafting at 4.1 uh, and elsewhere um, that we are um, uh, suggesting that there would be a confirmatory hearing. Um, uh, now, it's not clear whether that means that we would, it, it's not clear whether that is, we're suggesting that we have the right to say yay or nay, either as a committee or as an assembly and plenary to this appointment. And I still think that is. Um, I, I'm not totally comfortable with that as a finding, um, uh, yep. because I think that's further than I, I, you know. I think we, we had agreed that it would be the public appointments would be um, it, the public appointments process would be inter, inter um, would interact with us. I think that was a correct um, uh, suggestion from Jim, but I, but I'm still not sure that we're being clear. With, I'm, I'm still not sure that we've agreed that we want to make. The affirmation of this appointment subject to assembly approval, which seems to be the implication. Still, I think, and if I recollect the meeting correctly, I think the um, the consensus of the group was that it would we would uh, put a full stop after the word public appointments process and delete that last part of the sentence. Um, I think Jim Alster wants to come in, possibly. Jim, at the same point. sorry. Uh, I actually want to raise a different point. Oh, but sorry, right, yeah. sorry. Okay. Sorry, beg your pardon, Chair. Uh, so, in consideration of uh, paragraph uh, 4.1 or subparagraph 4.1, would the committee, and I think this was the consensus of what we understood last week, are we content to put a full stop after the word process and delete the rest of the line? Content. Content. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Jim, your point? Yeah, uh, Chair, I just want to raise a point. And I apologise, I haven't got the report open in front of me because my other machine, its battery has died. 
so I can't give you the paragraph, but uh, we keep referring, or there's references here to the need for a memo, uh, memorandum of understanding with DWP uh, in relation to holding information on Northern Ireland Social Security. DWP doesn't hold information on Northern Ireland Security uh, benefits because unlike Scotland and Wales, those are managed and delivered locally by the Department of Communities. So why would we need a memorandum of understanding with DWP? Sorry, Matthew? Uh, I, I think that Jim makes an... I'm sort of giving a speculative answer. I think DWP does do certain work with uh, the Department for Communities. I would assume that's why it's in there, but I'm happy to, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting question. Um, I think D the Department for Work and Pensions will hold, hold information, well, even though, as Jim says, that the actual practice of managing the benefit system is devolved here to DFC, but I think DWP does do work. Uh, I think certain work is done by DWP in Northern Ireland, uh, even on a kind of subcontracted basis, as it were, is my understanding, but also I think there are, the, it will hold other UK-wide information that includes Northern Ireland that will probably be relevant to the work of the Fiscal Council would be my understanding, but I'm kind of speaking uh, beyond that. Sorry, Matthew, and again, I think, and subject to confirmation, that w DWP hold the UK national database on all uh, issues to do with Social Security, so they need to be able to access that so they have the overall figures. Because DWP provide the data that goes to the, the community, uh, Department of Communities, and it should be useful. I think that the, and I think from the evidence that we received from uh, the other fiscal councils was it was important to be able to access or have access to the sort of the the source data, for want of better terminology, and that was the reason why DWP was part of the part of the group. I think, Chair, also. My point is, DWP, I do not believe, hold any information on Northern Ireland benefits that the Department of Communities does not hold. Now, they might have national data, which could have some relevance, but they don't have any NI-specific data that we don't already hold. I Chair, just for information as well, the Department for Communities undertakes work for DWP, so the Belfast Benefit <coughs> Delivery Centre, um, used to certainly undertake um, quite a lot of work for, uh, I think it was the east of England. Um, members had asked questions about it before, and the departments declined the answer. <coughs> so the idea of the MOU is just so that the Fiscal Council could have access to all, but uh, if members wish that to be amended, then it shall be so. Chair? Um, I'm content to let it in, keep it in. Okay, that's the concern. Point, Chair, if I may, but I don't see, given it's, it's, the, the memorandum of understanding would simply allow, I presume, the Fiscal Council to uh, agree a process whereby they could request information and, and have an assumption that they would get it from, they, they wouldn't be able to get every, you know, they're not, I presume, going to be able to get every jot and tittle of information at, at the drop of a hat about benefits payments in the northeast of England yeah. um, because they wouldn't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Why would they need it? Okay. Okay. Uh, 
Any other further comments? Okay. Therefore, in that case, are members content that the chairperson approve the relevant excerpt from today's minutes and it be added to the appendices of the report following today's meeting, along from the excerpts of the minutes of the 29th of June and the latest correspondence from the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council? Are we agreed? Agreed. As the committee, I say, therefore, the committee has therefore considered the report as amended and is content that this be the full and final version of the report by the committee and that be published as such. Is this agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Is the committee also content to share the report with the Minister and the Fiscal Council and to provide a link to the witnesses who provided evidence and to statutory committees and the Audit and Public Accounts Committee? Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Peter. And may I put again on behalf of this committee our thanks for the hard work of yourself and the team for doing this very credible piece of work and uh, look forward to hearing the comments from the other uh, sectors as we go out. But again, thank you very much indeed. Okay, we move on to the next item on the agenda, item number seven, Statutory Rule 185, Restrictions on Forfeiture Written Briefing. I refer members to Statutory Rule 2021-185, the Business Tenancies, uh, number two, Regulations 2021, page 299, and remind members that the committee considered ministerial correspondence at last week's meeting on the Statutory Rule. No officials are available to provide an oral briefing to the committee. A written response to related committee queries is at page three of tabled items. The committee was advised, owing to the time pressures, no SL1 was to be submitted to the committee, and the rule would be in breach of 21-day convention. The examiner of statutory rules has accepted the department's explanation in this regard in her 45th report. The department previously made a statutory rule making use of section 83 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, providing that a right of re-entry of forfeiture under a relevant business tenancy for non-payment of rent may not be enforced by action or otherwise during the relevant period. The committee agreed previous rules which extended the relevant period uh, to the 30th of June 2021. The committee stated that the UK or the minister stated that the UK government had unexpectedly extended similar provisions in England to the 25th, 25th of March 2022 and advised that as an interim measure the Department had brought forward a statutory rule to extend the Northern Ireland restrictions on forfeiture provisions to 30th of September 2021. The Committee had queried with the Department the reasoning for such a short extension by the Department. The Department's cover letter states provisions had, has been given to the 30th of September, while officials consider the implications of a longer-term extension in line with England. The rule is subject to negative resolution procedure and was laid on the 28th of June 2021 and came into operation on the 29th of June. The examiner of statutory rules has yet to report on this rule. Sorry, Chairperson, I'm done. That's uh, my mistake there. The examiner of statutory rules has reported and is content oh, with the rule. Beg your pardon, my mistake. Okay. my mistake. So just for the examiner of statutory rules has reported and is content. Just a quick question. Is there any indication, apart from the response letter, that the Department is going to extend this further than September? No, there's no indication. The letter is basically saying we're going to look at it, but that's it. There's no... That's all that it says. So they are taking soundings, I yeah. imagine. So. Okay, thanks. Anybody else? Okay. The members are content, therefore, that the Committee for Finance has considered the statutory rule, statutory rule 2021, number 185, the Business Tenancies Coronavirus Restriction on Forfeiture Relevant Period, Northern Ireland, No. 2, Regulations 2021, and has no objections to the rule. There we go. We're content. 
and I have no doubt we will be seeing this again fairly soon. Indeed, Chair. Just encourage members to answer out loud and clear whenever they're agreeing, <laughs> particularly statutory rules. Okay. Uh, next item on the agenda, item number eight, statutory rule 2021-127, official statistics. Members are asked to note statutory rule 2021-127, the official statistics amendment order, Northern Ireland 2021, at page 307. The rule was affirmed by the Assembly on the 14th of June and came into operation on the 1st of July 2021. The rule amends the official statistics order Northern Ireland 2012 to include the Education Authority, InvestNI and the Labour Relations Agency as producers of official statistics. Are we content to note the affirmed rule? Content. Are we agreed? Yeah, they're nodding. Agreed. Okay, that is agreed. Well, have we got Joanne, Jeff and Anne ready to come on? I believe we have some, so if we... If not, we can... No, I think we have we've, uh, Joanne and Jeff there, so they're just... Uh, could... Pardon? You, you put them into the spotlight and move the members out. Thank you. Um, and sorry, we've just lost Jim. I just want to make sure that he's... I don't think that was intentional. Joanne on. Yeah, she is. Ah, hi, there. Joanne. Hi, Chair. Are you? For once, we're ahead of schedule. Can you imagine that? That's amazing. That is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad that Jeff and I were waiting. All right. Is Jeff around? Yes, there. He, he hopefully is. He certainly said he was going to join. Yeah. No, he's there for some reason. Okay. Hi, Jeff. He's there. There you go. Hi. Yeah. And Anne Scott, I don't think we've had Anne in front of the committee before. Not there. We. I'm not sure if Anne has actually joined yet, but uh, Jeff and I are happy to uh, go oh, ahead if excellent. you want, and Anne can join in later. Okay, thanks Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Tim, we move on to item number nine in the agenda, Oral Evidence 2021 Outturn in June Monitoring Round. Uh, the committee will now receive oral evidence from department officials on the provisional 2022 uh, Outturn and June Monitoring Round. Uh, Joanne, we all know, Jeff, we know, and Anne Scott, who may come and join us later on, is a public spending directorate. The following papers are relevant. The clerk's briefing paper at page 310. The minister's recent oral and written statements at page 316. A departmental response on hard charging for the government and state at page 375. The investing activity capital report for June 2021 at page 380. Correspondence from the Northern Ireland Office on the New Deal for Northern Ireland Funding at page 8 in the tabled items, and correspondence from the Department responding to committee queries were either monitoring around at page 12 of the tabled items. A uh, session has been recorded by Hansard. And Joanne, Jeff, who's uh, speaking for this one? I'm going to I get the opportunity, Chair. Okay, over to you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to brief the committee on the outcome of the 2021 provisional outturn and the executive's 21-22 June monitoring exercise. As usual, um, please feel free to stop me and ask questions at any stage. Before turning to the current year, I want to brief the committee on the 2021 provisional outturn and resulting budget exchange scheme position. Last year was unique. The pandemic and the resulting unprecedented levels of COVID-19 funding the late notice of much of this funding and the rapid establishment of unique support measures created a position that held a greater degree of risk than we are used to in, in relation to public expenditure. In the two main metrics of public expenditure, non-ring fence resource DL and capital DL, 
There was no overall overspend, and underspend came within budget exchange scheme tolerances, meaning that none of this funding was lost in Northern Ireland. The underspend reported by departments, together with central adjustments, has resulted in carry forward of 85.7 million resource Dell and 17.8 million conventional capital Dell into the 21-22 financial year. Unfortunately, the underspend of 55.6 billion for ring fence financial transactions capital does exceed the amount which can be carried forward by 26.4 million, meaning that this has been lost through underspend. While it is an improvement on 2019-20, where 72 million was lost, it is nonetheless disappointing. It does, however, reflect the challenge associated with identifying suitable projects that can avail of this finance which may only be used for loans or equity investment in the private sector. Jeff, just a quick one, just as we go through there. Obviously, we've just seen the utility regulators um, report uh, authorising Northern Ireland Water to uh, look for investments up to about two billion. Um, was there any indication that the Department for Infrastructure uh, had were given enough heads up so maybe they could have bid some more for that because? You know, 26.4 million going back, bearing in mind this, you know, considerable pressures on Northern Ireland water. I think every committee meeting we've had with sort of conversations with you, there's always been sort of requests for infrastructure for more money for Northern Ireland water. How did we get to the point where they weren't able to bid for that? Because obviously that would seem to look at meeting the criteria, particularly sort of the significant wastewater projects that they're looking to do. Unfortunately, um, Northern Ireland Water can't access FTC because it is designated into the public sector, so it's not um, a, a private sector company that, that could access that. Um, in terms of Northern Ireland Water, we understand that they have got their full capital requirement for 2122, um, and then it will obviously be up to the executive to look at that going forward into the into the time frame that the regulator has set out that. Um, that overall capital requirement for. Yeah, and also look, with an RRI borrowing, there's what sort of seventy odd million, um, you know, for uh, sort of social housing. So, are we at a situation where the we can't physically build any? We're at the sort of the limit of what the system could absorb for construction or uh, infrastructure projects, or what what's going on? Um, so, yeah, the. the we, we are. We are. Um, we understand that the Department for Communities can use that seventy million pounds for um, social housing, and there, there isn't a particular issue on that. But certainly, um, we are aware of a, the, the growing pressure that is on the system, um, and the, the the constraints that are placed on planning and so on and so forth by not having adequate uh, infrastructure in place for that. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Cheers. Um, turning to ring-fenced resource L, then, this is funding which can only be used for depreciation and impairments. There was $401.9 million of underspend, of which $395.7 million cannot be carried forward. I understand that committee members expressed concerns in relation to this funding on the floor of the House. And I want to briefly set out the circumstances around this underspend. Most of this underspend relates to student local impairments. An impairment is an accounting concept based on the idea that an asset shouldn't be carried in a body's financial statements at more than the highest amount it could potentially recover from selling it. Student loan impairments is a ring-fenced area 
meaning that Treasury look at this as a separate category of spend and movements into and out of this area are not generally permitted. In December, the Department for Economy provided DOF with an updated forecast for student loan impairment, identifying a pressure of 133 million, with total forecast expenditure being 225.1 million. In previous years, Chair, once the Department had provided an updated estimate, estimate of the student loan impairment, and if there was a pressure in that particular ring-fenced area, this was notified to HMT and a call made on the reserve for the amount required. And this was standard practice across devolved administrations. So in previous years, if we'd have needed 50 million, we'd have asked for 50 million and received 50 million. However, last year, um, Treasury revised their procedure. And instead of allowing a claim on the reserve, they provided a born of consequence for ring-fenced student loan funding based on the English funding provided to Bayes at Westminster Spring Supplementary Stage. This born a consequential of £443.8 million, which was notified to DOF on the 28th of January 2021, post-January monitoring, was significantly higher than the £133 million pressure identified by DFE. This funding was ring-fenced for student loan impairments and it could not have been utilised elsewhere. There was no opportunity for DOF to request a partial drawdown of the funding, and because of the ring fence, there was no opportunity to use that funding for other areas. Effectively, Northern Ireland received a foreign consequential based on the 50% loan impairment charge in England. Given our impairment rate is much lower than that in England, it was inevitable that much of the funding received could not be spent and was returned at the end of the financial year. Notification on the 20th of January, post-January monitoring, had the result that the unallocated funding held centrally was not highlighted as part of the monitoring round, like unallocated FTC would have been, and therefore it was not on the committee's radar. Monthly forecast outturn reports provided to the committee show spend against departmental budget and only showed spend against the budget that DFE required. Given the circumstances that I've outlined, outturn data resulted in a 369.8 million of ring fenced underspend being returned to Treasury. Had the executive received the amount as forecast by the department, the underspend would have been 23.6 million. However, as I mentioned earlier, this must be considered in context. This funding may only have been used for non-cash costs relating to depreciation and impairments. So it is in effect a technical accounting issue. And given its technical nature, the loss of this underspend has no impact on the level of funding available for public services. And to our knowledge, this will also have no knock-on impact on subsequent years. Um, thanks for that. Just a quick one on the idea of ring fence Dell and ring fence funding that comes to us. If any other, so let's say it came in on health and it was hypothecated um, that it would be ring fenced, how would that sit? So, whenever we're talking about ring fences in this area, it's it's along the lines of fiscal. Um, ring fencing, so it looks at the key, the key control totals for um, Dell in Northern Ireland. It doesn't look at departmental specific areas. That's not an area that, that we would call ring fenced in Treasury's eyes. So um, we would we would fully anticipate that anything that would have would come in under health would come in under the normal process of on a consequential, which would be um, available for the executive to use to fund key priorities right across the board. Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. Thanks for that. 
Tur turning to joint monitoring then, the executive had 149 million resource Dell, 91 million capital Dell, and 57.6 million financial transactions capital Dell available to address pressures of a routine nature and those arising as a result of COVID-19. This funding includes reduced requirements of 20.7 million resource Dell and 23.4 million capital Dell. As is usual, the resource Dell bids submitted by departments far outweigh the level of resources available. Some bids can be revisited later in the year when there will be more clarity on actual costs. The executive agreed to allocate the full level of resource Dell funding available in this round, 149 million. Full details of bids and allocations are set out in the tables which accompany the monetary statements. However, I would like to highlight a few specific areas. 54.7 million was allocated to the Department of Health, including 31.5 million to aid with pressures in elective care. The Department of Education received 39 million. Of this um, total, 35.7 million is to help children with special educational needs. The remaining 3.3 million is for COVID-19 pressures. In light of the need to have funding in place to provide certainty for victims, an allocation of 19 million to TEO for the victim's pension was, um, was agreed. Discussions continue with the UK government regarding the long-term funding of this scheme. Turning to Capitaldale, all bids for Capitaldale submitted by departments were met. This totaled 61.3 million of commercial capital. 26.6 million was allocated to the Department for Communities for a range of housing projects, including 8.3 million to the housing executive to help tenants with a disability to adapt their property. The Department of Education received 18 million, 14 million of which is for works to deliver additional accommodation across the school's estate. 11.5 million was allocated to the Department of Health, including 8.4 million for the replacement of equipment, vehicles, and essential maintenance works across the health estate. 1 million is provided to assist in the provision of a pilot mental health rehabilitation facility in Antrim. This facility is the first of its kind and will address an identified gap in care. An allocation of 8.0 million ring-fenced financial transactions capital has been made to the Department for Communities in this round to assist in funding the over 55s shared ownership scheme. Having met all capital bids, there remains the remained 29.7 million unallocated. And given the position on capital Dell, the executive decided to reduce ORI borrowing by 30 million, leaving a small overcommitment of 0.3 million. This can be revisited in October monitoring where a decision to access further borrowing can be made depending on the capital bid submitted at that stage. 46.4 million financial transactions capital remains unallocated at the conclusion of June monitoring. Full details of transactions are set out in the tables that accompany June monitoring statements and these tables include the spending area transactions as required by legislation. We're happy to take further questions. Yep. I've just got uh, two before opening it up to the team. Um, one of the things you know we've been talking about Quite a lot. We've been looking at evidence. We're about sort of hard charging for for buildings, and uh, so. And I, I I heard you were talking about some of the things we were talking about the buildings as well. So, one of the questions we have is is can you know, can the department advise on the centre of government actions it is undertaking in order to drive down resort costs and improve efficiency, in preparations anticipated challenges with the next spending review, which of course is going to be significant. Is it? Is the department to encourage other departments to divest themselves of underutilised buildings? And will the department drive efficiencies like these by hard charging other departments for building costs? Because we've been asking this question about sort of uh, hard charging and where it comes, and we haven't really had a satisfactory answer, to be quite 
clear. So have you got any particular views on that? Chair, um, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, no, I, was gonna, I was just going to go and say, it, it's not actually our area, but we obviously do encourage all departments to uh, make whatever efficiencies they can and to divest themselves of properties that they're not in need of. There's a review of property management as they're ongoing, but it, it's not our, our role and it's not an area that we would be able to, to give you any more detail on than has already been provided, unfortunately. Hi, Anne. Good to see you. Hi, sorry for the technical issues. No, no, no. It's, no we, we, were, we were ahead of schedule. It's, it's something that's virtually unknown in this committee, but we were ahead of schedule. <laughs> but welcome and welcome to the Thank committee. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Yeah. Uh, just another question about the uh, June monitoring round, and particularly in the statements about the Victims' Pension Scheme. Um, and we've also had correspondence uh, which shows the strategic business case. Uh, it shows a delivery cost of the scheme of around uh, £47 million for the first six years. Um, did the department have a look at the costs that have been involved in the business review when it came through? Because I know you said about the £19 million that you've already looked at, but have you had a chance to have a look at the overview of the strategic business case? Um, certainly, we've... We, we are aware of it, Chair. Um, it's not something that, um, certainly on my side, that it's dealt with in detail, um, but we are aware that there, there are um, significant costs going forward. Yeah. No, it's just, I mean, and sort of apropos of just going through it and sort of the diligent work of the team here and the rest of it, but I noticed the president of the board is being paid, I think it's £350,000 a year, and that is in line with what the president of the uh, historical investigations um, or historical abuse uh, uh, president has been, um, salary line has been put for. That's pretty significant. And I think a Supreme Court judge in the UK um, gets about maximum of about 280000 So I don't know whether that's including sort of pension costs and the rest of it, but that seems to be pretty big and sort of... If you look at some of the other costs as well, I know it's a strategic overview, but it does seem to be some pretty, there's a lot of significant um, expenditure. And I just wondered if anybody sort of run the rule over it. Certainly on the supply side of things, um, the, the department are looking, I think, at the business case. Joanne can correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, they are aware of the business case and they are going through it at the moment. Okay, and I know it. I know it's going to be an extraordinarily difficult job, but it does, you know, it does does leap out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as Jeff says, the supply side are are going through the business case as we speak, and they they will no doubt ask questions on that. But it's helpful to have your view, Chair. Okay, thanks very much, Dave. You good, Keith? Yeah, thank you. And just to follow on from the chair, thank you, uh, Joanne, Jeff, and Anne. Uh, the victims' pension fund. Um, I think it was Jeff referred to discussions with the British government. Where is that sitting now, Jeffrey? Can you give any more than that? You know, how far has that got in respect of the British government supporting that fund? Um, sorry, if, if I can jump in there. Okay. Um, we are currently um, in the middle of the, dis the uh, dispute process with the Treasury, which the Treasury take forward on uh, matters relating to the statement of funding policy. So that dispute resolution process is ongoing at the moment. Okay, and, and with respect to um, victims, when do we see the first payment going out to victims? Have we any idea of timelines, approximately? That would be a matter for, for the Executive Office, but I think, um, from memory, it's probably in the, in the autumn. But, but certainly, from our perspective, the funding has now been, in the, been made available. 
in the June monitoring round. So the funding is there when, when the executive officer, when the scheme's up and running and ready to make those payments, the funding for this year is in place. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Uh, Matthew? Thanks, Chair, uh, and thank you all. We will release you into uh, your summer uh, in just a few questions' time, so we'll, we won't we'll try not to prolong the pain of listening to our uh, misinformed questions for, for too long this afternoon, but before then, um, I want to ask, first of all, about um, the Barnum Consequential um, uh, on, on, on student loan impairments. Um, Thank you, Jeff. That was a useful explanation. Um, am I to understand that this was completely an unexpected uh, change in approach from uh, from from London? Was it the Treasury, or was it um, or was this done? Was it a Treasury decision, or was it by or, or was it a decision that effectively originated with? I guess it would be Bayes. Um, so. We, we understand that it was a Treasury decision because um, normally what we would do is we would advise Treasury of our requirements towards the end of the year. Um, we would have an associated call on the reserve for that funding and therefore then we would get a budget cover that we that we needed. Um, the, the decision on you know changing that from a, a reserve claim to a plan of Barna Consequential, I can only assume is the Treasury's um, position we're not quite sure at the time um, we 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 you know processed what they had done but we were in the middle of doing the first of four post January monitoring covid exercises so we were we were understandably maybe otherwise engaged um, and our priorities were elsewhere in terms of trying to find out the, the root cause of what had happened and are you concerned by it or are you, is it a matter of uh, and kind of just technical, or are there any, does it cause you any broader uh, in terms of precedent? So we're not we're not concerned by it. Um, it's a change in process. Uh, it may be that that change in process just helps to streamline the position of the treasury and makes it easier because it's it's formulaic and it doesn't take up time from three devolved administrations asking for specific claims of the reserve and having to check those claims against um, the, the forecasts by days on and so forth. So we're not overly concerned about it. Obviously, um, the, the amount that comes by a, via on a consequential from now on will potentially be more, much more significant than um, uh, we would need in our requirements. But at this stage, we have no reason to be concerned that there is any kind of knock-on impact for future years funding or any kind of consequence for um, the way that we report at this moment in time. Is it the principle though that it's um, it would seem to be a less bespoke form of managing all of as a consequential to a decision rather than engaging directly with the devolves Broad principle is it's sort of. Would you ask him to pose it again? I didn't pick up. So, Matthew, Steve here, could you uh, pose that question again? You broke up. I don't know if uh, 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 the. Apologies. I don't know if the uh, team from finance heard it, but we didn't hear it. 
But the, 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 I'll just repeat it, Chair. The, um, the Wi-Fi in inner South Belfast is notoriously excellent. So I don't know what's happening. Anybody who's, anybody who's watching and thinking of investing, our, our Wi-Fi connections are brilliant. Um, my question was really, Jeff, it would seem like the principle that is being applied is one that is basically less bespoke, as in it, it does not allow a devolved administration to say, this is our requirement for this particular piece of expenditure, i.e. Uh, subsidizing student loan impairments. Uh, it's just applies a catch-all um, Barnett formula. Yes, it, it is, it is a, a less bespoke um, option for Treasury to fund it in this way. Um, that, that's true. Um, there are pros and cons to how that is done, whether it's done by a consequential and therefore, um, you know, we get our, our Barnett share and we know and we understand that process or whether it's done by reserve claim and there's a, a bit of negotiation done as to how that that works. At this moment in time, that Barnett consequential does work for us because obviously we get a much more than what we actually need. Uh, um, there's, a, there's pros and cons to it. But, I mean, there are, the, the point is that, because, it would be fair to say that because Northern Ireland has many fewer students per head of population, we only have two higher education institutions, basically. Uh, we know we have the Mazen situation, so for that, for, for those reasons, I assume, are we, uh, we per head of population, uh, uh, spend a lot less on student finance so therefore we will perforce have a smaller student loan impairment even uh, obviously at a, at a gross but also at a, at a kind of per capita basis but there will but if are there areas where if this approach was applied it might be to our detriment in the area of student loans it will be very it will look very much like we're underspending because we need a lot less relatively than the english higher education system needs in terms of subsidizing impairments but are there other areas where if this model was applied, it would be to our detriment. I, I'm not aware of any area where we um, make a specific claim on the reserve for anything um, that may be to our detriment if we got a, a born a consequential award. So this is um, this is a, a complex area, and Treasury and Bays and ourselves on Scotland and Wales have been struggling with this area and dealing with the the uh, volatility of these assessments for a long time. Um, I'm, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not aware of another area where we would be worried or concerned about this approach. Great, okay. That, sorry, I just want to get, get the bottom of that. Um, and a couple of other fair points, Chair, and I'll hand over to others, but um, on the capital underspend, there was 30 million capital uh, CDL underspend, that was used to reduce RRI um, rather than that. So that was used to reduce RRI at this point, rather than um, would there have been an option simply to hold that as underspent CDL to carry that forward into October monitoring? Because what will need to happen now is that in order for to use that CDL in October, you'll need to go back and access more RRI borrowing, which has been effectively recategorized. See, so why was the decision made at the, what at a relatively early point in the financial year to reduce RRI now rather than simply carry forward the CDL? 
so you're right that um, the the funding that we had that was unallocated, the thirty million pounds, could have been brought forward and held until October. Um, well, the, the decision that was made was to reduce ORI borrowing simply so that borrowing costs could reduce. Um, that decision can be looked at in October. Um, we have we do assessments of capital projects and we uh, and the ORI borrowing um, profiling. Um, so. We can up our RI borrowing, not a problem in October if, if there are sufficient um, capital projects that the executive deem worthy. But we uh, uh, thought that it was prudent at this stage to reduce the borrowing, to reduce the, the cost to the executive long term should um, that position continue for the rest of the year. And obviously, as I say, we can re revisit that in October. It's just without, without any kind of concern. But the, but the, the reduced borrowing costs are. The, the counterfactual is uh, so the counterfactual is either finding a pro something to a capital project or capital uh, an area in which to spend the money, um, either via conventional CDL or RRI. You either do that in October or you don't do it in October. But the the counterfactual is what that you that you lose that you don't save. It must be what I'm trying to say is it must be a relatively small amount of money that you're saving. Uh, correct me if it's wrong, but I, I mean, it would seem like a relatively small amount of uh, money that you're saving in terms of 30 million, the borrowing cost of the additional borrowing cost of 30 million in the in the course of what, four months, or, or is that am I being unfair? Yeah, no, can I just yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I just step in there. Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, the cost of the save will, will will be relatively small, but I think the key point is that there's no detriment by not borrowing now. There's absolutely we borrow monthly in advance of spend. There's no point incurring thirty million of, of borrowing in the first few months of the year no. if departments don't need that money to fund their capital projects. There's absolutely no issue with an October monitoring or even as late as December monitoring deciding that we need to borrow. So there's there's no downside from not borrowing because we can review that at any point in time. But there is a small plus side in that we're not incurring unnecessary costs. Okay. Sir so Matthew, can um, I just come in there just a quick second and uh, sort of I think it's a germane question to what the one you were asking. Jeff, you said that there was indications that the capital projects were falling behind. Is there a general in, is there a are we as some projects running into difficulties or can you elucidate which areas there is specific problems with? Because um, you know, we're sort of halfway through the you know, we're halfway coming up to halfway through the financial year just after it. So are we at a point where we've got sort of issues with projects are already uh, in difficulties? No, no, Chair. Um, apologies if I gave that impression. Um, it certainly, it's, I have no um, information on the, the kind of the general spend of capital projects. It's just saying that we have allocated all the, the capital, um, you know, departments bid for 61.3 million of capital in June monitoring, and we have allocated that all out. So it's, it's not that we have fallen behind, we just have surplus capital there, so I'm apologies if I have given the wrong impression. Okay, no, just, it, 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 wouldn't be, it would be understandable during COVID and the problems with the construction industry at the moment, just in case it was, but yeah, I just, just <laughs> thought that way. Okay, sorry about that, Matthew, sorry for coming in there. No problem, it's fine. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a point there, though, about uh, capital project, if inflation continues, um, maybe the capital projects are actually more expensive than. Almost time there now. Of course, they could be less expensive, but um, uh, 
on the subject of um, monitoring and on the Ardell side, one big allocation around which there is, uh, I suppose, a degree of risk given the novelty of the scheme is the High Street Voucher Scheme. Are you at this point, is the Department of Finance at this point uh, confident that all of that Ardell will be um, used up as planned and as agreed? We have no indication to the contrary. Okay, that's a good, concise uh, answer, Jeff. Uh, uh, admirably, con both concise and diplomatic. Uh, so I'll, t I'll take it that. On the uh, my final question, Chair, is on we now this autumn or when you probably be the first week in December, sometimes it, but will be the first comprehensive spending review we expect since twenty in six years, basically. Um, can you give us what plans the department is making? and um, uh, where you are with the Treasury and, and, and what you will be bringing to the, and whether you will be bringing a submission, a draft submission to the executive for approval and, and what level of detail. So um, the, the, the comprehensive spending review, the spending review um, for this year is due to be announced in the coming weeks um, with uh, um, we understand that it will be that the outcome of that will be reported in autumn. Um, now we're not we, we're not cited on at what stage in autumn that is. Um, obviously, it has a direct impact on our budget process um, and the outcome that we will be able to um, provide in a draft or a final budget. Um, so at this moment in time, um, we're we're not very cited on the, the spending review outcome or what may or may not be contained in it. We may get more information on that when it's formally announced. The minister is um, speaking to his uh, the chief secretary of the treasury and his devolved counterparts later in July, and uh, the, one of the focuses of that meeting will be on the spending review and whatever um, information the chief secretary can provide on it. Uh, we're not standing still at this moment in time. Uh, we are considering how we um, formulate budget the budget locally here, um, and we've been in discussions with finance directors on that. Um, as recently as yesterday or the day before. Um, so we're, we're looking at a, a local process at this moment in time um, and try and uh, match that process to, to conclude uh, uh, in late September, early October, so that we are prepared for whatever outcome um, the, the, spending the spending review provides for us and we can uh, adapt and respond quite flexibly at that stage. Just in simple terms, though, is it you, would you anticipate being able to say either this autumn or whenever a new executive agrees a new program for government that you can confirm multi-year budgets in areas that have not had multi-year budgets for several years? We would be anticipating doing that at draft budget stage post spending review announcement. Are there any areas that you think where you think? If, it, if there's an urgent case made, for example, in the area of health, where uh, it would be possible, it would be possible to give uh, advance confirmation of a multi-year budget if it would help with, for example, urgent transformation plans. Sorry, Jeff. Just, just as we, sorry. The, the key point is that the executive can't set a multi-year budget unless we have a multi-year spending review. Now we are hopeful. And we have been led to believe that Treasury will deliver a multi-year spending review, in which case we will 
do the same the finance minister has indicated that but if we don't get a multi-year settlement from treasury then the executive cannot agree a multi-year budget okay yeah indeed so you haven't been told that by treasury this is definitely going to be a multi-year comprehensive spending review the, uh, in a meeting with the finance minister, the chancellor indicated that it would be a multi-year spending review, but it has yet to be announced. As Jeff said, we're expecting the announcement in the coming weeks, which will set the, the date and, and the parameters for that, and we're still hopeful that it will be a multi-year. Okay. okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Matthew. Sorry, Jim. Uh, you, you made an extraordinary statement there. You said that all of the capital bids had been met. Indeed, not only had they been met, but you were able to... To, to, to send money back, as it were. Is that a, not a very, very unusual situation that our departments are, did not have enough bids, did not have enough bids in to soak up all of the monitoring round money available? It, it is unusual. Um, it's not something that we would have anticipated uh, a number of years ago. One of the, the, the issues around it, one of the things that um, probably has led to it is that we have had um, additional capital brought forward from last year over and above budget exchange through the COVID-19 um, additional funding. So uh, we've, we have probably more at this point in the year than we would have previously had. Um, and that's one of the kind of key factors that has led to this. Now, we wouldn't have told on you had you done this, but was there anything to stop you moving some of that spare capital money across into uh, revenue? In other words, you had pressures all over the place in terms of uh, you know, uh, health, education, needing day-to-day -day spending. What was to stop you sort of gently sliding that into uh, revenue expenditure? Oh, that we could. Um, Treasury, uh, the Treasury control totals. Um, but we, we, wouldn't have have to we wouldn't have told them. on you. We wouldn't have told anybody you'd done it. <laughs> Jim, <laughs> you're being naughty. That's that. Sorry, just guess the questions. Listen, Jim, you've been naughty again. I'm afraid by telling me whenever Treasury review this. <laughs> so there was no flexibility allowed, being serious, but there was no flexibility allowed at all to move that into so many hard-pressed areas where it would have been very welcome? No, um, unfortunately not. Right, so you've moved, is it 30 million you've moved back in, into the, the pool, as it were, of that money, unspent uh, capital money? So 30 million of it, um, we have then we have reduced our ORI borrowing. So instead of borrowing 170, we'll now borrow 140. Um, so the overall capital control total will stay the same, but our borrowing amount will reduce. But if a capital pressures arise as the year unwinds, can you get that money back? Yes. We can we can accelerate or we can increase our ORI borrowing up to the maximum of 200 million. Should uh, we come to the point in October monitoring where there are additional capital pressures and we have no additional funding to meet? That's good news because I thought that money was effectively lost, but it's not. It's still there and available to spend. Uh, uh, yes. Will you be emphasising to all of the departments to to make certain that there must be bids out there that they just didn't bother to submit because they thought they weren't going to be funded? Are you going to say in the next month around, do, do put in what's sitting out there uh, that needs urgently done? Well, certainly um, supply teams are engaging with departments on a regular and ongoing basis. And one of those, the, the issues that they will highlight to them is um, what is required in terms of capital. So um, finance directors as well will be aware of the outcome of June monitoring and aware of the position. Um, and we would anticipate that um, each department will look at their capital requirements and um, bid accordingly. You see, in the real world out there, the price of construction is going through the roof. 
uh, pricing for concrete uh, and bricks, you know, the basic building blocks of all construction properties, uh, uh, projects, is, go is going crazy. Uh, uh, I don't, we don't know why, but it is, and therefore people can't even tender properly for, for major infrastructure pro projects. So it is actually in the interest of Northern PLC that that money is spent sooner rather than later before the situation gets out of further control. Yes, and it could be that some of the capital projects that are existing may come back with additional requirements simply because of that inflation um, issue. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Thanks. Uh, Alicia. Just ask him again. Alicia. Can you hear me, Chair? Yeah, we can. Yeah. 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 Hi, you're all very welcome. Uh, it's an honor to see you again. Um, just in relation to uh, a question earlier there I, uh, uh, with the health service, and given the commitment we say currently that uh, we have within the executive and the likes of it as well too for the reduction uh, of um, the uh, uh, waiting lists in the health service, has there been discussions uh, with the, uh, within the executive uh, in relation to uh, other departments uh, reprioritizing or redirecting resources uh, to address this issue. I take that one, Jeff. Uh, in this gym monitor round, we, we met most of, of the Department of Health health bids. Um, so I think it's probably more of an issue for for the budget going forward rather than the monitoring rounds. And I think that's something that the conversations that the executive may want to have as we're developing the budget for the you know for hopefully for the next three to four years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then again, uh, just as I talked about capital projects and so on, and that uh, the DFC had returned 18 million, uh, which was earmarked for the construction of uh, Casement Park. Is that any indication of the likelihood um, or the unlikelihood of uh, the likes of this project uh, being progressed this year? Well, it's certainly, um, it, it's an indication of um, the funding that DFC anticipate to spend on the project in this financial year. They had been allocated 20 million and they've given back 18. So it would it would be an indication that DFC only intend to spend 2 million pounds on the project in this financial year. Malisha, Malisha, uh, just to, uh, for clarification, I think for the rest of the committee, I think the minister has already stated that the reason why the money came back, and I think it was a question in response to mine, uh, was to do with planning issues. So they couldn't, they can't progress any further until the planning issue has been uh, resolved. I think that was the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, then. Yeah, in, in terms of uh, uh, the department, is it encouraging other departments, uh, in particular, we'll say, uh, to divest themselves of um, underutilised buildings, uh, given just comments that have been made there, even in relation to the likes of depreciation and so on, and that for that, in a sense, was a useful tool, uh, and that where it wasn't actually money on the ground, it was actually lost to the Treasury. But uh, uh, in terms of uh, the underutilised buildings, is it the case that uh, the, that, uh, the department um, will address this issue, maybe even through the likes of hard charging um, to other departments now for buildings that are underutilised? So, so it's not specifically our area, um, but um, I imagine that Properties Division will be looking at this. Wait, I mean, 
right across the, the department, right across the NICS, um, we are focused on trying to encourage uh, streamlining and um, you know, savings where possible. Yeah. Okay. Good, man. Thank you, Chair. Thank Thanks, you. Felicia. Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. And uh, thanks, Joanne, Jeff, and Anne. Look, my questions are quick, and a yes or no will do if that if that was possible to go for. It. So, it's can the um, the uh, is there a problem with the executive's capital program? Uh, can the department, if there is a problem with that executive's capital program, a yes or no will do for that. And the construction sector, it's struggling to get capital money spent, or officials struggling to manage the executive capital's program. And then what I would like to know is can the department advise why only around 28 million of the 429 allocated to the Department of the Economy was used in 2021? That's all. Yes or no, the other two, and if you can explain that for me, that would be great. Thank you. So, um, we, we are not aware of any problems in the, uh, in the wider um, capital programme. Um, departments haven't um, provided us with any further additional information in terms of um, how, how they are spending or if they are struggling to spend that. As I said, the one indication that we had was that we had um, additional um, capital available in June monitoring post all the bids, but that's probably more as a result of having more capital come into the system at June monitoring through provisional return than we would have normally had. So um, we're not aware of any particular capital issues. And um, uh, I think that might cover the two. I'm not quite sure of the third question. Could you repeat it, please? Well, it's just the third one is uh, the department advised why only around 28 million of the 429 million allocated to the Department of the Economy was used in 2021. Um, I, I think this is probably in relation to student loans. So, okay, that's fine. That's great, Jeff. That's enough. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Is that you, Pat? Is that you finished from Deepest Lisburn? That is me funny finished from sunny Lisbon, sure. Over <laughs> okay. and okay. uh, Joanne, Jeff, Anne, thank you very much indeed. And um, first of all, uh, I'd just like to say, coming to the end of the term is one of better terminology. Thanks very much indeed for your hard work and for all your assistance to the committee over the last couple of months. I know it's been difficult, but uh, and I can't imagine the next couple of months are going to be any easier. I just wish you all the best and please get a bit of rest somehow over the summer months and then we'll be back at it again. Uh, no doubt we've got a lot of stuff to do in a very short period of time. But uh, please give our good regards back to the rest of the department and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. And I'll not be, won't seem to be that long away. Cheers, everybody. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Um, will you take 15 minutes of correspondence and then go to FS... Andy, do you want to do that last action? Just oh, sorry, I'll do the action. Okay. Sorry, that's right, sorry. Uh, team... Um, uh, just think of some of the, sort of the actions we had to take forward. Our members, are we content to sh share the response on hard charging with the Northern Ireland Audit Office and ask it to comment on the reasoning for not adopting hard charges? I think we are agreed on that. Yes. Yep. Uh, Single-year budgets, accountancy challenges, and apparently an expectation that this would create an obligation on building fabric investment. I think that's some of the issues we've seen in the correspondence. Are we content to do that? Yep. Content. Agreed. Okay. Uh, 
So the witnesses are there. And all right. Item so, is number 10. Well, in that case, we'll bring them through. If the witnesses here, we'll bring them yep. forward and all the rest of it. Uh, we're moving on to uh, item number 10 in the agenda. And we'll bring in um, Sharon, John and Brian. They're coming in to uh, see us in person. This is, this is, no, it's a treat. Nearly, this is nearly a historic event. It is. <laughs> People, people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what we're going to do. Come in, Sharon. How are you? Come in, John. Come in, Brian. Oh, and we're we're just giving over the shock of actually having real people here again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I know how to behave. Oh, well, well, <laughs> <laughs> talking for myself, of course. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Um, uh, team, this part of the, of the agenda, the rest of the committee are on uh, sort of uh, Starleaf, and you can see them on the see them on the screens. And I know this session is a particular concern to Pat uh, Catney, who's in uh, in very sunny Lisburn, as he's just been telling us. And uh, and it's up to it was Pat who asked us to bring you in, and sort of we're delighted that you're here. Uh, team, uh, we're receiving a briefing from the Financial Services Union on banking issues. I'd like to welcome to the table Sharon McCauley, who's the President of the Financial Services Union, John O'Connell, who's the General Secretary, and Brian, who's Head of Communications and Public Affairs. Uh, the following are relevant to the agenda item. Clark's briefing notice, page 384. A briefing paper from FSU is at page 386. A copy of papers previously received by FSU and UK Finance the Committee for the Economy is pages 389, uh, 397 and 411. Previous co correspondence from the Department regarding its local banking role at page 414, and previous correspondence from UK Finance at page 416. And I think, John, you're leading off. Please. Yes, please. Please make your own Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank you for the invitation to address today's meeting of the Finance Committee of Northern Ireland Assembly on the issue of banking and the change in nature of the financial sector in, in Northern Ireland. Oh, excuse me, just one second. I think we probably made a declaration of interest. You and I have talked before, John, haven't we? I think so, yeah. I, we have yeah. indeed. Just a declaration addressed sort of in my previous role in economy and the rest of it. I think John and I have talked together about the banking sector. I just want to make that as a declaration of interest. Apologies to the committee for not doing that earlier. Sorry. I just realised when you started that John and I recognise. The Financial Services Union is the leading trade union across banking, finance and fintech sectors. We re represent thousands of members in the main retail banks in Northern Ireland. We have encountered countless changes to the banking landscape in Northern Ireland for well over a decade and have always taken a proactive approach to managing that change. The pandemic has had the effect of accelerating change in the sector. I would like to talk today about who that change is benefit benefiting, how it has been managed and why we need to pause to give us all room to think about the effects it is having on our economy, communities and the staff that work in the sector. Mm -hmm. The important part of change is to manage it so that those people affected are brought along and feel part of the change. The concern of the FSU is that decisions are being made by a select few without proper consultation, without sufficient oversight powers being given to the regulatory authorities and with no comprehensive long-term strategic plan in place. Over the last few years, we have seen branch closures occur in all of the main retail banks in Northern Ireland. Bank of Ireland, AIB, Danska and Ulster Bank have all closed branches, leaving some communities bereft of face-to-face -face banking. Staff numbers have been cut, lending skills lost and valuable local knowledge helped by bank branch managers has vanished and access to cash is fast becoming an issue for our communities. 
Over 150 bank branches have closed since 2010 in Northern Ireland, with just over 100 branches in total between the big four banks will remain by the end of 2021. How many banks will be, physical banks will be left? I think it's exactly 108 uh, in, in terms of but just over 100 in, in, in terms of uh, Across the whole of person. Northern Ireland for a population of yeah. 1.8 million. We, we, we have seen a 13% fall in the number of ATMs on our high streets, while over one in five ATMs now charge customers to withdraw their own money. Buildings which were once the pride of the town now lie idle. The latest batch of closures announced by Bank of Ireland was done with little notice or consultation with staff or customers. A strategic review of their branch network was announced. And despite many requests, the terms of reference were never published and staff heard about the decision in the media. It was also done against the stated wishes of the UK regulator, who went on the record in January of this year to state, where they are unable to meet the expectations of our guidance during lockdown measures, they should consider pausing or delaying new branch closures where possible, particularly where this would have a significant impact on vulnerable customers. Vulnerable people will be hit the hardest. We know this because the banks have told us. When Bank of Ireland made the announcement to close 15 branches across Northern Ireland, they were required by the regulator to publish what is termed a branch closure impact assessment. In it, the bank states, Bank of Ireland UK recognised that the closure of this branch impacts customers who find themselves in a vulnerable position, particularly during this period of COVID-19 restrictions. These are not my words, they are the words of the bank. A bank that recognises we're in the middle of a pandemic, recognises that the proposed actions will impact vulnerable people the most, but continue unfazed with their plans. A number of banks signed up to the Access to Banking Standard, which came into effect in May 2017. The standard's overarching aim is that customers and relevant stakeholders of a bank branch that is closing will be provided with clear, understandable, accessible documentation and information about that specific closure as soon as the bank is able to do so. Also, what it will mean for them and how they can continue to bank following its closure. In its impact assessment, Bank of Ireland states, as part of the access to banking standard, we will send this impact assessment to customers of branches that are closing when we announce our decision to close. So in reality, the impact assessment is published after the announcement of the branch closure and the UK regulator has no authority to stay, say stop. According to a UK survey, 3% of British people do not intend to go back to a bank branch post-COVID-19. However, people in Northern Ireland report the highest attachment to bank branches of all regions of the UK, with 85% of people saying that they have or will return to bank branches, and just 1.7% saying they will never return. We would make the case that power should be given to the regulator to allow them to pause any bank branch closures until full consultation has happened with staff, customers, and of course the local communities. The traditional method of providing banking services and the whole structure and nature of banking is being eroded, and it is the concern of the FSU that we will exit this pandemic without a branch network. Once the branch network is dismantled, it can never be rebuilt. Decisions are being made by the four main retail banks in Northern Ireland that will leave towns without vital services, small businesses without support, and those of us who are not IT literate struggling to access financial support. It is little wonder that public trust in banks is low. 
The UK regulator carried out a financial live survey in 2020, which uncovered worrying findings. One of the many findings show only 42% of ad UK adults agree with the statement, I have confidence in the UK financial services industry. It is in everyone's interest that trust in such a vital service is restored. People trust their local branch, but do not trust the bank. Mm -hmm. The FSU has been clear in our call that any proposed branch closure should be delayed until we have exited the pandemic, and a full and structured debate has occurred between all stakeholders on the future of banking. We cannot allow, allow the few to continue to make the decisions for the many. We need an inclusive debate involving, amongst others, staff representatives, consumer groups, consumer advocates, the government and the banks. This would be as beneficial for the banks as it would be for staff and customers. Banks are entitled, as any other business, to make a profit, and a stable and vibrant banking sector is important to the economy and to all of us. We recognise we are in a digital age where a section of the public want to bank online, are happy to pay for goods with a swipe of their card, but it is also the case that there are people who prefer to visit their local branch, discuss their business with the local branch manager, and who are nervous or unable to use online banking. The banking sector needs to be able to cater for a diverse customer base. This is a challenge, but we feel that, that is, with the involvement of all stakeholders, we can achieve an acceptable outcome. The FSU has met with Conor Murphy, Minister for Finance, and officials from his department on the establishment of a banking forum. We are heartened by the warm reception we have received to our proposals, and we are currently working on proposed terms of reference for such a forum. We would ask today that this committee would endorse the proposal and commit itself to working with the Forum and all stakeholders in the financial sector so together we can strategically plan the future of banking in Northern Ireland. Staff and customers need to be at the forefront of any change. Ulster Bank and KBC have recently announced that they will be withdrawn from the Republic of Ireland. This is how quickly the sector is changing. While the KBC announcement will not affect Northern Ireland, the announcement by Ulster Bank will have a direct effect on 600 jobs based in Belfast, which directly service the Ulster Bank in the Republic. Let me be clear, these jobs can and should be saved. We are currently working with NatWest on this and would ask you all to use your influence as public representatives and as members of this committee of the Assembly to convince NatWest to reassign work to these roles across their wider network. If there is a willingness to do this, then we can achieve a good outcome. As I mentioned earlier, announcements of change are common in the banking sector. Bank of Ireland planning to close 15 branches, Ulster Bank withdrawn from the Republic of Ireland. Danske Bank closed four branches last year. AIB closed 15 branches in 2017. And we have the growth of entities like Revolut. But change can be a positive thing, but we also need to manage risks. Digital risks, financial exclusion, illiteracy and digital exclusion. COVID-19 and its effects will unfortunately be with us for a long time to come. We should desist from making big decisions about future banking intentions until society has reopened and people and businesses are able to plan and organise for what will be, for many, a new reality. Banks need to be in communities at this vital time, supporting small businesses and the agri-sector. These industries need the support and knowledge of the local bank branch to help their farms and businesses survive through the next 12 months. This is not the time to withdraw services. 
We need an inclusive, vibrant banking sector that works for us all. It is a worthwhile goal and can be achieved. An inclusive debate, a pause on branch closures and a willingness to discuss and manage change is at the core of our message to the main retail banks. I feel your support to these three asks would be an important step in the right direction. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sharon or Brian, do you want to say anything or anything to add, or just want to be involved in the questions when we're starting? Just involved in the questions is fine. Thanks. Okay, there's a yeah. couple of things. Oh, look, thank you very much indeed. And John, you and I have spoken before, particularly about the Ulster Bank issue, and sort of do that as well. Um, I always find it quite ironic, and I'm not going to grandstand here, but I always find it quite ironic that when a bank comes and tells me it's shutting its branch, but everything's okay because it's going to be supported by an ATM. Just after I've been told that you know the ATM has been removed by somebody with a JCB, and closely followed by oh yeah, and it's uh, you can also get your cash through the post office, at the same time as I'm dealing with somebody from the post office saying they're shutting down the local post office branch. I think every single MLA here, and particularly those of us in the more rural areas, have had that time and time again. And it's interesting that we have received evidence, and we were involved a couple of weeks ago in the High Street Task Force. And if you look closely at the high streets that are affected the most, and if you track it back to when the banks left, because, of course, the footfall that has been brought into the area through banking, once that goes, it doesn't come back. Mm. And it's the whole thing, it's the synergistic, it's the whole piece together of where, it, where it's going to. But I think one of the most substantial things that we as a committee need to, to look at and sort of to consider is the overall impact, not just on sort of your sector itself, which is important, but it's on the wider community. And there is no doubt there is a significant impact on it. So the first question I have is what sort of, and I'll, I'll split it into two questions, what sort of discussions and what feeling do you get? Because I've heard this now for four or five years from when I was in economy until now in this committee, but I've heard that the banks are making decisions over the heads of sort of both the unions and most of the employees. The first thing know about it is they either see a press release or what they're coming particularly worried about now is the, you know, the, I'm not mentioning a particular bank that might be connected to Scandinavia, but, you know, they all invite them for a coffee morning and tell them they're all going to lose and the place is shutting. I mean, uh, is that improved? Is the communication, the dialogue improved? And as I looking at your face and what you've just told me, I don't necessarily think it has, but, uh, you know, you can formally sort of give us that uh, 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 advice. I think, Chair, we have engaged uh, extensively in, in, in relation to, to these issues and the other issues that were in our uh, paper on the forum, on the, the purpose for the forum and the reason behind us asking for a, for a forum to be formed. Uh, and in fairness to the banks, they've all acknowledged that a debate would be a good thing in, in, in terms of, of the future of banking. And they have other caveats that it has to be commercial debate and, and so forth that you'd expect and we'd respect. In, in, in terms of, of that debate. I, I think we still have a bit to go in terms of how we manage change, that there's ways of managing change. We're uh, a pretty progressive trade union with an excellent track record in change. Uh, but I think in, in terms of what we've seen around the pandemic has been distasteful, that we think it's, it's opportunistic yeah. to close branches and cite you know, fall and footfall uh, as a result in, in, in terms of as the, the reason behind that. Uh, and, you know, we, we've asked banks to publish the footfall, publish publicly the footfall, let people judge themselves in terms of uh, whether that footfall is viable or not. And remembering that we asked everybody to remain at home and only make uh, necessary journeys. So uh, we think 
it, it's time for pause uh, and allow communities, uh, you know, a reinvigorate after pandemic. And then, if there's decisions to be made, enter into discussions, not just with us on behalf of staff, but on behalf of communities. Have a dialogue with communities. Don't just make announcements. Mm -hmm. uh, open up a dialogue with communities about how banking is going to be provided, what the community would like, and, and so forth. They have, the banks do have a, a societal responsibility to provide uh, good banking services. Particularly, and the, particularly people, those that have been bailed out considerably by the taxpayer. Exactly. Uh, that that uh, the, uh, people were there to support them in, in, in terms of uh, when things uh, got uh, difficult in, in previous years, and not that many years ago. Uh, and those same people now are in that um, uh, are in those communities looking for support, whether they're farming community, whether they're SMEs trying to get back on their feet, uh, or whether they're just ordinary people who want access to, to banking because they have confidence in the people they meet uh, in the branch network, rather than dealing with uh, you know somebody down the telephone or somebody on, on in terms of one of the social medias. Uh, in, in terms of providing their service. So it's about bringing people with us rather than leaving people behind. I think the other, the other question, I would, and, and I hear it time and time again, is that more and more people are using sort of internet backing or the rest of it. But obviously, because of increasing security demands and sort of uh, the necessary for uh, you know, effective sort of crypto security, obviously increases the bandwidth. And of course, one of the biggest problems we have in the areas where, you know, um, sort of rural areas, we have sort of some pretty poor bandwidth and sort of connectivity, and you know it's going to be a long while until we have 5G installed in Northern Ireland to such a degree that it will be able to support both sort of uh, the necessary levels of security on sort of banking systems as well. So the banks, uh, again, the number of times I've been told to me that it's you know the solution is on your smartphone, uh, at the same time as they complain about not getting a mobile telephone reception in my office, just seems to say that we're a long way before we get to, to we get to the point of achieving that um, just want to come back and talk a bit more about sort of how you're getting on with um, NatWest particularly sort of the sort of in the Belfast sort of jobs history and sort of looking at those particularly about those uh, back office functions and has there been any sort of breakthrough in conversations with the sort of uh, the sort of uh, the senior management of NatWest about doing that because I've been told um, two things. I've been told one is that there is uh, a move towards absorbing more of the Ulster Bank here into NatWest to such a degree it will become NatWest. So therefore, you know, all the all the functions will be really absorbed and the staff will be freely moved throughout the United Kingdom or wherever it happens to be to do that. So it, to them, it doesn't seem to be an issue. But then there's another discussion that's going on at the moment about sort of Ulster Bank being kept as a discreet sort of uh, entity. Have you had any more sort of uh, updates I, on that? I think some of what you've said has occurred in terms of NatWest and, and its footprint in Northern Ireland being under the NatWest uh, legal entity, and, and that has occurred. Um, in, in terms of specifically around the jobs, yes, we've met with uh, uh, um, Ulster Bank CEO in, in relation to that. We had quite good discussions, and that's why I'm even more positive than, than I was in terms of the potential to save these 600 jobs. Mm -hmm. I think if the right approach is adopted by NatWest, what you're looking at is uh, a situation in the Republic of Ireland where they will, over a number of years, withdraw from, from um, 
from the Republic. And that allows us the time to find alternative work for this 600 people. These are 600 good jobs mm -hmm. uh, in Belfast. Uh, and that gives us the time. All it requires is the commitment from NatWest that they're willing to invest the time and effort to do that. They're a big, big entity. They have, you know, big blocks of work that they, from time to time, will need to find homes for. And we think that, that Belfast is a ready-made solution, skilled workforce, committed workforce, uh, and willing to take on uh, this additional, additional work to save jobs. And, sir, the final point, uh, so at the Banking Forum, um, we'll obviously discuss it with the committee, but I think we would be delighted to help support in any way. Uh, if we were in normal circumstances, uh, we would have a, uh, an event here in sort of the assembly, uh, we would we would we would co-sponsor co along with yourselves and sort of the banking community. We would we would sponsor an event here. I just hope that sometime in the autumn we reach a place where we can indeed do that, and that might be a good avenue for us to sort of uh, do an event here to be able to build to build on that. But I think that's been been important. Keith, sorry. okay, thank you, Don and Sharon and, and Brian. I have a sort of question regarding the, the, the banks that have closed. You referred to 150 as closed, or approximately that number. What's the tipping point, excuse the term, to close a bank? So if you look at a bank in rural Cookstown or Draperstown or some of those areas, what's the definition of the tipping point to close that bank? And obviously banks always close them in groups of three or four or five. Yeah. How do we, do you know what tips the balance in, in a, pick a dripper's time, but what tips the balance of that bank going to close? Well, you, you refer to football, football, are you talking about turnover? What do you, you know, what is the figure? What is the item? For these uh, series of closures that we're, closure we're dealing with at the moment, it has been attributed to a drop in footfall. That it's a customer choice thing where customers have voted and decided that they want to go on uh, digital platforms yeah. and therefore there isn't a, a requirement. <coughs> well, simply, we say publish the figures, and the figures will either back that up or uh, show that that's not the real reason. Uh, and it's not that these branches aren't profitable. It may be that they're not profitable enough, but it's not that they're not profitable. Uh, these are profitable branches, uh, well-established, uh, and uh, I, I suppose the reason being put forward is the only reason we can go on is, is that it's due to change customer patterns and behaviours, but it's been, been said as if it's almost the customer's demand and closure rather than the bank making but the choice. Do you not find, I know my own bank, John, every time I'm in, not that I've been too often, they say to me, are you online, go online, go online, so you don't think they're trying to push that direction? Yeah, no, they have had a strategy for a number of years in, in terms of directing people to different channels. So it used to be that they'd say to you, use the telephone service. Yeah. They don't even want you to do that. They've restricted the, the telephone service during COVID from a, a Monday to Friday, or you know, a seven-day-a-week service uh, down to a five-day-a-week service in, in areas. So in, in terms of um, they want to, us all to use specific channels, whether that's our choice or not. What we're saying is people need to be given that and continue to be given that choice of using whatever channel is appropriate to, to them in, in terms of... Um, and it's not an age thing, even though people put it down and say, well, older people want to do that. It's not an age thing. Certain people want to do the banking face-to-face. -face. If I was taking out a mortgage, I want to talk to somebody. Yeah. I don't want to be investing all my energy into a machine uh, and not having a dialogue in, in relation. And I'd like to think that they'd value my custom in relation to that. So I, I think people have a view that's not maybe been reflected in the debate. And, and we think places like the forum is an area where consumers' voice could be heard. 
So there, there was, for example, that bank in Draperstown is the example. There's no figures published to say the reason why we closed that bank. No. Nothing, there's nothing to indicate. No, they, they publish what's required from an assessment from, from the, the regulator. Yeah. And in, in the ones that, yeah. you know, in the example that I have today, they say that yeah. vulnerable people are the people going to be most impacted. Uh, and so that in itself is a shocking admission. But that's what they say is going to be the, the main impact of the, the closure to vulnerable you, people. You talked earlier, and then my last point, if I may, Chair, you referred to 108. Did you say those 108 were under threat or 108 left? 108 left. Right, and many of those 108 do you think are under threat? Because if you, obviously this is your bread and butter, if you looked at a map in Northern Ireland and you dotted those 108, if you were to think a guesstimate of many of those is under threat, many would, would you say? I, I think you could be in a situation where you're seeing another reduction in the region of 20% to 25% of, of that branch network within a relatively short space of time. Without that type of assessment that you're talking about, Deputy, in, in, in terms of well, what is the, the, the driver behind this uh, and what is the, the, the reason put forward? Re remember, there's a House of Commons paper there uh, that I'm happy to share with the committee that yes, shows please. that when a bank branch closes, lending to the small and medium enterprise sector drops 64%. And some of these banks are last bank in town, and it's much higher than 64% in those circumstances, as you can understand, because there's nobody in town to, to, to do business. You don't have familiarization with a branch maybe 30 miles away. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. John, just a quick one. Have you done any research as a union? Because there always seems to be, an, and I'm just going back to my local town of Ballyclare and Antrim, classic examples. It's not just one bank tends to go. One announces it's leaving, and by the time we're within sort of a year, we're down to one or no banks. Uh, and, you know, if that's in two towns, are we seeing anywhere else, we're seeing this pattern where they decide to sort of, one bank decides, right, I'm divesting, and the others will follow? Well, we are, and I think Banbridge is... Uh, yeah, that's sort of, that was, I wasn't going to come to that, yeah. Yeah, Banbridge is a good um, example of that. Once a, a thriving market town, if you like, and... One bank decides to go and then there's a question mark um, over the rest. And back to your point about banks looking to assess, you know, they look at the whole hinterland yeah. of where their customers are and they have their own internal rationale, uh, none of which that they would, would publish. Uh, they're looking at where the nearest um, branches are looking at the mix of customers and the type of business that, that is done there. And, you know, banks are driven by profitability at, at the end of the day. And if they think business, you know, will, will go somewhere else in their particular yeah. region, you know, they're, they're happy to take that risk. Sharon, do you think there's a direct linkage between, um, I mean, banks used to be able to give a considerable degree of service within the bank, you'd go in and talk about mortgages, you'd go and talk about this, or you would be able to talk to your small business, you'd talk to your bank manager who would do small businesses, but progressively banks said, no, you need to do this, the specialist is here, the specialist is there, so they've taken business out of the local area. And sort of centralised it, and then said, "There's no need. We're not getting the sort of the same footfall that's coming in." Mm -hmm. In some respects, they're engineering yeah. that post. Have you had much evidence of you being able to see a, a, a drop off when sort of banks start taking particular services out of the, the branches and centralising them? I don't know because I, I don't know the figures, and I, I suppose the but, but being part of a, a bank like other banks who did it at the start, it was all about expertise, being in a central area and being able to offer better service um, to to their customers. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be too far away where you would you would have to go, you know, if that was what you wanted. But that has been changed now and that has eroded and evolved into something else. 
and 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 of course, and if you're if you're sending somebody to another place, well, then it will have an impact, um, perhaps, on the services that you offer. And then you know you look at then you're winding down the services in that particular branch, and perhaps it's just cash transactions which banks look at as been worthless. To be yeah. quite honest, cost them more. Cost them. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Matthew. Uh, Gemma. No, oh, Gemma. sorry. Uh, if you go to Matthew. Uh, Matthew. Try and get him in. Matthew. He's not in the spotlight yet. Oh, there he is. Oh. No, I'm here. Sorry. Um, thank you, and thanks uh, to John and Sharon for the for the evidence. Um, uh, a few things just, I, I, I want to cover. Um, one is on um, some of what's been covered already around, obviously, the huge drop in the um, branch network. Is there has any research been done on not not to sound to use marketing guff, but brand sort of valence and customer loyalty? And what I mean by that is a lot of people will be Ulster Bank, AIB, uh, Danska, or Northern as it was customers um, who have inherited uh, a loyalty to that bank based on. It being a family bank who you know bank their parents or their family business, it's the you know the, the bank the, the the main bank in their small town wherever it is, but that brand the bank is withdrawing the the local uh, presence that was the basis on which in one sense the customer gave them that loyalty. Um, doesn't that reduce the? customers' loyalty to the bank's brand, and therefore doesn't it ultimately do damage to particularly banks, uh, local banks here, um, uh, which have re rely on that kind of brand loyalty. You know, they're not, they're not just like Revolut or um, Metro Bank, which is a new entrant and is not really here yet, but it's in London. Um, just thoughts on that, and has any research been done on that and using that in a sense to challenge the bank, the, the, the kind of um, inexorable narrative that simply reducing the branch network is a commercially wise decision? I, I think the research that has been done around um, the issue of customer loyalty has, has shown that, that people are extraordinarily loyal to, to banks and that they have uh, tended to, to stay with banks to the point that um, uh, once people join, you know, as teenagers or, or young people, that they tend to stay with the bank and tend to, to yeah. uh, be loyal. And, and that, that would contrast with the with, um, European situation where there's probably more movement in, in terms of customers uh, and customers um, uh, changing banks. So it would tend to be that people are loyal to, to, to banks uh, and, and that. But it's reflected in the trust figures uh, in, yeah. in terms of uh, the reflection of trust of, of the institutions. And the banks, in fairness, have declared that they want to recreate trust with, with customers. Yeah. Uh, but things cannot go the same way if, if that's to become a, mm. a, a true outcome. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aware, and I was very involved in it in a previous career, the seven-day switching. Uh, I don't know if that's not, is now reduced, but my understanding is you know, this was a pledge around being able to effectively make bank customers less sticky and create more ability for them to switch, uh, you know, account portability and all that more easily. But it's just proven that customers, 
it takes quite a lot to get personal customers to shift. Does that you do, do you think that is a long-winded way of asking the question? Do you think that reinforces the ability for Ulster Bank or Bank of Ireland to say, do you know what, it really doesn't matter that much if we uh, close, even if it's still a profitable branch, if we close the bank in Draperstown, to use an example Keith used, because we know that our customers in Draperstown are still likely, you know, our deposit base and our customers in that part of uh, you know the world are still they're not gonna they're not gonna leave us and is there is there a problem there basically is what I mean that people the, the banks are relying in terms of their deposit base and, and on on a, on a kind of customer inertia despite the fact that they are slowly withdrawing uh, the um, the broader community um, support that on, on which their some of that brand loyalty was built. I think the way I'd answer that is to say, first of all, there's consolidation in the banking market across the world, uh, and yeah. uh, this jurisdiction and the Republic of Ireland is no different in, in terms of the, that consolidation. So the choices for people are, are, are limited. The second way I'd answer that question is banks are data-driven uh, entities. They're very driven by data and by information. So they would know the data behind the potential loss of customers from branch closures, as we've referenced the numbers in terms of the amount of branch closures. So they would know exactly what the percentage loss would be in terms of, of customers. And I think as the, the, the market consolidates, that loss, loss of customers is probably reduced by virtue of the fact that people have little choice uh, in yeah. the market. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks, and then on, on the question of that, it was said earlier on, we, of our big four, uh, three of our big four were bailed out either by the UK or Irish state. We're very, uh, in, in good, very good in our way, we're both British and Irish in terms of banks that we've been supported by banks that have been bailed out. Um, but does that mean that because we have, well, in the case of what is now Not West, was RBS, it's technically headquartered in Edinburgh, but effectively London, and then BOI and AIB headquartered in Dublin, and I suppose in a sense Danske headquartered I presume in Copenhagen, does does that mean that we have candidly, despite the fact you know we're having this meeting today, but does political pressure count for less? Even though you know, given the fact that Northern Ireland will, the, you know, the North will be relatively marginal uh, to the parent groups of all of those um, all of those organisations. Is, is political pressure, political noise from us, frankly, less important than it would be if it was uh, elsewhere in these islands? I, I'm not sure that it would be less than elsewhere in the islands. I, I think the challenge is that when decisions are being made by, uh, you know, global organisations or organisations that are in a number of countries, uh, and that the actual decisions are being made in uh, another jurisdiction. That is a challenge, and it's a challenge to get access even to the decision makers. So, if, if you take the NatWest Ulster Bank uh, scenario, we had open access and continue to have open access to the CEO of Ulster Bank in relation to our concerns, uh, but we couldn't get access to NatWest. We requested a number of meetings with the board of, of NatWest, and that wasn't possible uh, in, in relation to it. We wanted to address the decision makers uh, themselves in terms of the board of NatWest, and that wasn't possible. And that's part of the challenge. Uh, in Tom, did they give you a, a reason for that? 
Uh, they indicated a market sensibility in, in terms of that the reason they couldn't meet with us was that they'd be happy to engage with us post the decision. We wanted to meet with them prior to the decision being made uh, and went to extensive lengths to, to, to seek those uh, meetings to, to be able to try and influence the decision because it, it, it makes a little bit of a charade of the decision yeah, if, yeah. if it's been uh, decided on by... Uh, the appropriate authority being the board of the bank, but that they won't listen to stakeholders' uh, views. Uh, and it's, it's a central tenet of every um, uh, country that, that stakeholders should be listened to, at a, particularly at a time of change. And it shouldn't have been just us that they listened to. They should have listened uh, to their customers who, who spoke loud and clear about the wish to retain them in the market in the Republic of Ireland as well. Okay. Yep. Thanks. Sorry about that. Um, Sorry. No, no problem, Chair. My final question is on my favourite subject, Brexit, and the uh, fact that there is no, um, uh, you know, Northern Ireland is now out of the single market in relation to financial services, and there is not, it looks like, going to be uh, equivalents granted. Um, what impact is that having? You mentioned the, um, the Ulster Bank, uh, the 600 Ulster Bank jobs who were previously servicing customers in the south, uh, what impact is that having on uh, the ability of, uh, I suppose, uh, three of the big four to do, um, uh, do cross-border financial services, and, and is there a jobs impact, on specifically in the north? I, I think, as I said, that consolidation was happening in the market in, in any event, uh, and we put that very question to, to all the banks involved in transformation programmes uh, that were impacting uh, staff and customers, um, both north and south, and put that very question and said, you know, at the heart of this, is this uh, a Brexit-driven uh, decision? And each of the banks denied that it was related to Brexit at all, that it was related in the Ulster Bank's case to the retention of capital uh, that they had to retain in order to remain in the market, uh, driven by the regulator and, and the European Central Bank. And equally, in the case of uh, Bank of Ireland and Northern Ireland, they said that their review was conducted because they had uh, an amount of capital almost similar to the amount that, that Ulster Bank referenced uh, tied up in the market in Northern Ireland, and they wanted to explore and see was there a greater value that they could get for that uh, capital uh, than was currently uh, being, being, um, being uh, received. So those were the reasons that, that, that they put forward. We did ask the questions, but those were the reasons that, that were put forward as to the drivers for them. So just to get this correct, then, so it was basically the Ulster Bank's view of their board was the fact that the book in the Republic was no longer big enough to be able to uh, underpin their sort of long-term investment strategy, so it made more sense to look where else their capital could be better moved, and sort of the, up, the converse happened when looking at the size of the Northern Ireland market. Yeah, they had to retain a higher level of capital for various reasons, uh, and the regulator determined that uh, in conjunction with the ECB, I understand. And they felt that that's a, that's, that that's amount of capital tied up uh, is um, inordinate uh, as, as to what capital they'd have to tie up in the UK for the, the same sums and so forth. So that was, and so basically that's probably the stress test analysis that they had to do for the... Yeah. Okay, thanks. Sorry, sorry, Matthew. No, that's fine, Chair. That's all my questions. Thank you. Okay. Thanks both. Gemma.
Thanks, Chair, and um, thank you all for your written briefing and your briefing here today. Sorry, I got kicked out there for a couple of minutes, so I'm sorry if what I'm going to ask has already been asked, but you can just tell me that. Um, and I actually can relate to a lot of the stuff the Chair said in relation to banks closing and yeah. them being promised, oh, but the post office is there, oh, but we're leaving our ATM. But I live in a village that um, our bank closed in 2016, and the ATM was left uh, but at least once a week the ATM's out of order and it doesn't sound like a big deal but when your nearest bank is 25 miles away it, it gets frustrating after a while so um, it doesn't sit well with me at all the, the promise of the post office or the promise of the ATM being there um, but my question is around the, the Executive High Street Task Force is looking at ways to revitalise our high street in the longer term so were there any ways or what incentives do you think um, the High Street Task Force should be considering to encourage banks to continue operating um, on our high streets or in our towns and villages? I, I think it's a very good question. I, I think it's a mixture of things, that there isn't one single item that, that, that um, uh, would, would change it. I think there's a, a dialogue with the banks, and I think, as I said, in, in terms of their place in the community, that they have a societal responsibility, and that needs to be reinforced with them. I think regulation has a, a role to play, particularly if you're last bank in town. I think there's a, a, an added responsibility in, in those situations. Uh, and even down to the, to the access to ATMs and the retention of ATMs, uh, that people still need, despite what we're all being told people still need access to cash to conduct their, their, their business. So I think it's a mixture of incentives for uh, not just banks but other entities to retain the, the presence in, in, in the high street. Uh, and I think equally it's a responsibility piece in, in terms of uh, stepping up to their responsibility to provide for society and towns and, and, and that across the problem in terms of uh, uh, access to banking service. Uh, and we, we don't want to end up in a situation where people are, you know, reduced to carrying out their business online. We have a health service that's still recovering from a cyber attack in the Republic of Ireland mm -hmm. that is frightening in its extent. Uh, and if that was to be visited on the financial services sector, and it has been on some countries, yeah. uh, the outcome of that and with, with society not having access to their funds is something that has to be factored into the equation. We're in a digital age. It has to be factored into the, into the equation. So I think there's a broader piece in terms of supporting, encouraging, but also regulating in, in terms of a presence on the, on the high street. And John, just okay, to, sorry, 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 Gemma. Sorry, Gemma. It's just a, 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 it's an interesting, that's a very good point you raised there. None of the banks have ever raised the issues about sort of they're paying too much rates or they're doing this or whatever there happens to be. It's always been a decision based on footfall. It's not been based on, you know, it's too expensive to maintain the, the presence there. It's always been based on a sort of footfall and sort of the cost benefit analysis of retaining the staff there. There's never been an instance where they turn around it's too expensive doing here because I know a lot of the councils, particularly in rejuvenating the high street, have been saying, you know, like, you know, we can basically provide the premises, we can do the rates relief, we can do the rest, but we still don't get the bank. The banks still say they don't, they still want to go. So, yeah, no, there's never been a reason put forward of, of that nature. It's usually been around activity. And like I said, they make the statement, but they don't back it up with, with statistics to show. Uh, and 
in, in terms of already there's evidence post, you know, as we emerge out of the pandemic, that footfall is recovering in uh, branches. So uh, I, I think figures, data will, will back up what they say or undermine the position that they, they've adopted. Okay. Sorry about that, Gemma. You, you happy enough for me to say that? Yeah, no, you're fine. Yeah, no. Um, just my other question, and I, the whole digital age thing. Yeah, we do live in a digital age, but you know, we we don't. We, obviously, we don't have the broadband infrastructure, and people don't have the knowledge or the ability to use technology, especially elderly people. And again, as I said, twenty-five miles away is your closest bank in the north. It's just not. It's not feasible. And um, but my other question was just around. Um, staff conditions in the event of a closure of a bank. In your experience, what has that been like? Have staff been um, made redundant? Have they been offered redundancy? Has it been generous or have they just been offered other jobs in other branches that might actually be too far away for them to travel to? Yeah, in, in terms of the individual impact on, on people, I suppose we've made some advances in that area, but we're not quite there yet, right? So what I mean by that is, is that the day of... Um, Compulsory redundancy uh, is something that you know we're totally opposed to, and most uh, decent people are. And so I think that voice has been been heard in in, in terms of, of uh, the banks, but we're not quite there yet in terms of accommodating people uh, in terms of when change comes about. And that's why I think both for customers. Uh, and for, for staff. Much longer lead-in times in situations where branches uh, are being closed would be required in order to facilitate people, in order to, to work with people in, in, in terms of uh, branch closures. But in, in the main, there has been an improvement, but we're not quite there yet in terms of, of, of change, because I could be told that you know, there's no compulsory redundancy. But like you say, if I have caring responsibilities and I live and work in the town uh, that I, I, I work in, uh, being told to travel 30 miles uh, is life-changing and usually means that I have to, I have to leave. So it's, it's deemed voluntary, but it's not really. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Um, thank you very much for your answers. They've been really useful. Chair, that's my questions. Gemma, can I ask you, you one? Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, where you live at the moment, but I understand with the sort of the banking shutdowns that's been going on across the Republic. I mean, the banking situation in Donegal is pretty appalling at the moment as well, isn't it? It is, but actually, where I live, my closest bank would be in Ballyshannon. That's only eight miles away. Yeah. So it's, it's better than 25 miles away, but again, it's, it's euro. So it's, if you're looking for sterling, it's no good deal. Yeah, but Ballyshannon's now just down to one, isn't it, if I remember rightly? Just one bank? I'm not sure. They did have Bank of Ireland and the IB, but I'm not sure now. Maybe one has closed. Yeah, because I, I, know, I know the sort of the, in Donegal, sort of particularly in Donegal town, and also further north in Letterkenny, there's real concerns about particularly rural areas. And I know, sort of, apart from Sligo, if you go a bit further out, sort of the entire banking system is gone. Yeah, and that was mm -hmm. one of the big issues about KBC going because that was the you know they had one or two additional ones, but that and Ulster Bank gone, there's just nowhere. And it's a really good example, Chair. We we addressed the meeting in Ballymote the other night, the, the beauty of Zoom era, yeah. uh, and uh, one of their biggest concerns was one that there would be 
miles upon miles that there will be no uh, a bank and, and that will be replicated up here. And the second thing was something that, that we have kind of forgotten about and that was a concern by uh, an attendee at the meeting uh, who was involved in, in um, uh, caring for, for uh, older people and that, and that was that people go back to an era of hoarding cash yeah. uh, and we're back into that whole cycle of destruction and robberies and, and, and so forth. So there's, there's other unintended consequences of closing branches that need to be taught through, debated, and, and see what alternatives, if a branch has to close, are, are available to people. But this was a really genuine concern from somebody who you know, is working in the community with older people and that they're concerned. Because the, exactly as you said, the post office network uh, was taken away a couple of years ago in, yeah. this, in this part. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks, Gemma. Sorry for that. Pat? Hi, Pat. Hello. Listen, thanks very much. Um, uh, thanks very much, Sharon, John, and Brian, for, uh, for coming today. I chair the All Party Group on banking, and I have to share your concerns. Um, I found it always difficult to try to speak to each individual of, of the large four, and UK finance was always what they put up to me. Uh, what I want to try and start, I don't want to really talk about the APG or my dealings with the APPG in Westminster. Um, I have a, a letter out from Bank of Ireland, and I remember going to Bank of Ireland in Lisburn when I lived out in Moira as a child, opening up my first account. It now says, we'd like to welcome you to your new Belfast city branch. So, Lisburn Bank of Ireland has closed, and the nearest bank for me is in Belfast City Branch. So, they give the letter of what is happening. What the point is, when I joined that bank first, I would have been loyal to them. Uh, Paddy Canavan was the bank manager in High Street, uh, working out of Lisburn when I went down and tried to borrow that money from a first business. All of that is gone. What you said was 60% of business people won't have access in order to try and go out. Those entrepreneurs, that, that'll be gone from, and it's gone forever. There'll be no way to try to get that back. Back in September, NatWest confirmed that it was reviewing Ulster Bank's strategy in the Republic of Ireland with hundreds of Belfast posts supporting it. I know you spoke on it quickly. So I had a letter from them in September. Uh, the 11th, the 11th, Ulster Bank informed their employees and customers about the terms of reference of any review. I'm, I'm only going to go quickly on this, or certainly around job security and the level of commitment to operations in the Republic. I got another letter on the 12th of the 12th from Mike McCrow stating a strategy to grow our Ulster Bank business in the Republic of Ireland organically and safely remains unchanged. We continue to evaluate the impact of COVID. So, it's very difficult in order to try and deal with them, as you've already said there, John. And I don't want to bash the banks because I know the services that they did, but they're always putting up UK finance, and that's a barrier and uh, that we aren't able to try to break through. Uh, again, just as, a, um, as an MLA in Lagan Valley, without going down heavily on, 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 on my commitment with the APG, I had reason to go into Lisburn today just to get a pair of trousers turned up. It cost £14 for two pair. The, young, the woman did not have a, a, a machine where she, I could have paid. 
with my debit card. So I went across, I just checked my phone, I went across to the ATM, withdrew 20 pounds. It cost me 20 pounds 99p to pay a bill for 14 pounds. So there is a cost and a charge. Now I did ask, there will be a charge, but when the sun's shining on it and you have money to pay, I really have to question all of that. And I think it's something that we need to be looking at, those charges on ATMs as well. I want to thank you all for coming in. I don't have any questions for you, but whatever help and support I can give, and I know how difficult uh, as I already said, that it is with you is in order for dealing with the sector. And thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Alicia? Can you hear? Yeah? Yeah, we can. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay, it's Jess Bula Lipsha. It's very nice meeting you. And thank you, Roland, Sean, you. You're very welcome here this afternoon as well. Um, now, just nearly everything has been said, I can identify with it. In fact, even everyone talked there about the whole idea of uh, uh, footfall. I think of when I worked in Derry, uh, and I'm going back 20 years, uh, that at lunchtime, they were queued out the door. The reason being that there were less cashiers on the desk, forcing people in the direction of internet banking. And at that stage, you could see it was a strategy down the road. They were going to come back and tell us that we all Gone to, had gone to banking by choice. Uh, I also live then in a rural town here in West Tyrone where uh, five years ago there were three banks in this town, now there's none. Uh, so I know exactly what it is that people are talking about. In every respect, and I'm not going through all the other sort of experiences or arguments that people have, even in relation to the the, the role that banks have within a community because it's specifically that role that to me is more important in many respects. Um, uh, and again, too, as I've declared before, uh, I was a founder member of Cred Union uh, in our own community. Um, and that when you look at the raison d'etre, we'll say, for banks and that of Cred Union, banks, at the end of the day, they're there to profit and maximise, and that's what they're about. And they'll come up with any excuse one way or the other to intuit they are profit maximising. Cred Union, at the, other, and the, at the other extreme, they're there to deliver a service to the community, to be supportive of the community and its members and so on. So which brings me to sort of more or less, uh, and making those statements, uh, I also have addressed the questions. I asked myself, well, what is we're looking for? Are we expecting banks to say even at the present time to turn around to have a change of heart? I don't think so, not in any respect. They're always going to uh, be true to their main objective i.e. maximising profits. So what I'm actually uh, saying there that we should be thinking in terms of, like in, uh, the, in, in the House only last week, we discussed the very idea of social clauses and that and contracts and so on. So if banks are to be providing, we'll say, are to be selling their wares within uh, a country even if it went that I think there should be legislation there as well too to ensure that they are being held responsible for del delivering to the community uh, those very very services which are not going to be profit making one or another but whilst they are making their profit they still have a responsibility towards the general community in itself I think that is one thing that should be done and the second thing then that's what I'd like to ask maybe your opinion on that on just so very idea uh, of looking to other sources to deliver that same type of service that we have enjoyed, we'll say, uh, in the past. Uh, and while that is, i.e., through the likes of, again, Credit Union or through the likes of community banking, uh, 
what would be your feelings in relation to that? Uh, that in some ways that that could really, I think, go maybe a long way uh, in, um, in uh, delivering the service. Because that's what we are talking about then. Thank you very much uh, uh, for those questions, Chair. Um, I, I think in, in terms of uh, the commercial entity, we're, we're realistic. We understand that banks have to make profit uh, and that it has to be a viable uh, entity, the bank itself, in order to sustain and grow uh, and uh, continue the employment of, of, of the staff who remain and, and so forth. We don't think the change needs to occur in the, in the method that it currently occurs. We think there are other ways uh, and other examples of how change can come about that doesn't need necessarily have to have the impact on communities and staff that the, that the current method of operating uh, does. We've seen in the reports that, that the banks have to publish that vulnerable people uh, are the worst hit in terms of these changes. And so there should be a responsibility and a way of ensuring that responsibility through regulation or another method of ensuring that people have reasonable access to banking uh, in, in terms of, of uh, that. In terms of community banking, interestingly, I saw an article during the week where there's a, a, a number, I thought the number was in the region 25 or 26, community banks being proposed to be opened across Wales, uh, and that's something we're going to, to, to look into. But I think in, in, in terms of the SME sector and, and people being loyal to banks, I think there's a, a very, very strong case, and I hear what you say in terms of, of uh, that these decisions are made, but I still think there's a very strong case to be made for pausing, having the type of debate that we're actually having here today in terms of what do we envisage the future of banking to be, uh, and making sure that the, the bank uh, put their case uh, on the table in terms of what they envisage the future of banking to be, uh, and that all other interested stakeholders uh, including political representatives, customers, the SME sector, the farming community, and us as staff, as staff representatives get their voice heard in that same debate, that we, we try and agree a way forward, particularly around change and how change is visited on people, uh, that is much more palatable than the current situation of it just being by diktat. So I think there's a, there's a lot that could be done there, both on a voluntary nature from the banks themselves and equally from a regulator, ensuring that communities are protected uh, and that banking services are protected. Uh, well, uh, I actually think uh, myself but that the only way that uh, will ever be achieved is not by having an expectation that all of a sudden that uh, banks are going to become benevolent societies because they're not. Uh, and I do think that one has to legislate for that. Yeah, no, some of it, as I said, some of it should be voluntary. The banks should step into that space and say, we hear what people are saying. We hear that people are uncomfortable with these decisions being made uh, in the middle or towards the end of a pandemic and that they respect that uh, and pause. And if by, you know, by necessity, if those um, requirements to ensure that we all have a, an, an equal access to a banking system uh, has to be by regulation, well, then so be it. In, in terms of, but that should be at the other side of a debate uh, that they are respectful enough to pause what they're doing and allow us debate about what we think is the is the best method of bringing change into the, the banking and finance sector. Well, sorry, just uh, if I could pursue this into you commented there on community banking in Wales in particular, but you seem to imply that uh, it had limitations, especially in relation to servicing SMEs and the likes. 
What are those limitations? Yeah, I, I suppose the, the example is that, that uh, the main banks have the biggest swathe in terms of the SME sector. That's not to say that community banks couldn't have a role to play in that, but I think the, the evidence is that between them, between the big four, uh, they have carved up the SME sector, uh, and that it would be quite hard for, for community banking to break into that break into that sector. Is that purely because of uh, the capital requirement in order to finance SME? Or? I, I think there's probably lots of factors. Risk would be one factor. I think loyalty that we talked about earlier on would be another factor. Uh, and I think the, the certainty in, in terms of um, access to capital that SMEs require would be another, another factor. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that project develops in, in Wales. Um, and like you said, there's other entities like credit unions that have roles to play in terms of finance in our society. But we think that, that having uh, banks on the main streets is a key part of any structure of finance uh, in, in our society. And, and just a final question on that. Have you had much discussion with credit union and to what extent they're prepared to uh, step up to the plate and meet local needs? I, I think in... In terms of if we get to the stage where there is a forum, I think the, the credit unions are worthy stakeholders in that, uh, in that debate. In the Republic of Ireland, the central bank has requested that any debate that takes place in relation to, to, to the uh, financial sector or the banking sector would also include post office network and uh, the credit unions. And we're totally open to that. We want a, an inclusive debate. Thank you, Malisha. Jim? I understand you're more likely to change your wife than your bank. <laughs> I've, I've changed my bank twice, but only the one wife. Um, but that does indicate the loyalty uh, that people hold. But I have three children, one's 36, one's 33, and one's 30. The concept of them going to a bank is totally foreign. It's on to some gizmo, which I don't understand, as I have the oldest mobile phone in Northern Ireland. So they go onto this phone and they do all their banking online. And if you ask them when they last visited a bank or what the purpose of a bank, they would just look at you. Now, that's the one side of the community. The other side of the community, you've got older people who are totally lost without the bank. Now, in Rafaeland, what happened was there were three banks. When one blinked and shut, the other two shut immediately. And that's what's happening in Banbridge. I live in Banbridge, so I can see it happening there as well. That once the Bank of Ireland left, the other two immediately followed. Now, the, the difficulty I find about this is that older people, people of my generation, struggle with this. Younger people don't understand what the fuss is all about. So how can we square that circle? How we can, can we maintain an adequate uh, number of branches? As the generations age, they become less and less relevant to younger people. I think some of it is let us examine the data. And the reason I say that is that there was a survey done very early on in the pandemic in the Republic, and younger people indicated uh, a much higher percentage of likelihood to return to bank, branch banking uh, even than the older cohort, right? Uh, and so in, in terms of what we're being told, and that's why we keep constantly call for the data to be published, uh, what we're being told and what the reality is may be two different things in, in terms of 
the level of footfall, the level of usage of the branch. And some of it is driven by the fact that a service is withdrawn from a branch and therefore you went every week for this service and now the service is withdrawn or it's online and therefore you don't have a reason to visit the branch uh, anymore. But I think it's a, it, it is something that matures as, as your children uh, will develop in terms of, of buying uh, cars or buying a home and, and, and so forth. They will engage and, and start to have a relationship uh, with branch staff, and with bank managers and, and uh, with staff in the banks in order to uh, meet their credit needs, be that housing or motor needs or, or, or otherwise, or holidays and, and so forth. So it, it is something that develops and, and we're probably all the same in, in that respect as we mature and, and life uh, comes and visits us, it, it changes our behaviours in, in, in that regard. And I think uh, equally, uh, there's the issue of digital literacy, which everybody again attributes just to older people, and it's not just an older person thing. Digital literacy is something that affects a wide tranche of the, the, the population. The degree of comfort that I have or don't have in terms of carrying out transactions online, fear of making mistakes, uh, fear of something going wrong, uh, and the, the comfort that I have of uh, visiting the bank branch. In, in uh, the UK, which did a survey which showed uh, that up to 30% of the population are in that category of preferring to deal in cash or preferring not to deal in uh, digital banking and preferring to have access to, to, to branch banking in order to conduct their needs. Uh, and so I think that's quite an extensive swathe of the, of the population in that study. Uh, and it's something that I think that, that the banks have to reflect on uh, and um, provide a service. Uh, I think part of uh, being part of our society is that you meet the needs of that society. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, just a quick question. You referred here um, about a reduction of ATMs by 13% and obviously a charge, a 20% charge in the remainder. Would you put that down to terrorist gangs running around stealing them? So we've heard obviously rural areas suffer bank closures and they'll suffer gangs removing them, stealing the ATMs, and then some businesses not replacing them. So. Where do you see the 13% reduction at? Is that rural, and is that a direct consequence of terrorist gangs going around stealing them? I, I, I wouldn't be able to attribute it to either of those things in terms of a qualified that they're they're well, rural. That was, whatever, see the ones that was always removed by mechanical means. Let's yes. just say, were they all replaced? Um, my understanding is that in the main, that, that in those instances they're insured and replaced in 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 terms of of that. I think it's. Uh, driven by upgrade of technology. It's also driven by the fact of deciding whether an ATM is, can be changed and, and converted into one where there's a charge uh, in, in relation to it. A lot of the banks have outsourced their ATMs to third parties that provide uh, the service. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say some of the reduction is down to the third party making a commercial decision in relation to the location and, and, and that. I wouldn't have information attributable to any other reason. Because banks have a, you know, whenever banks put an ATM in a particular location, um, there's a, a, a system behind it which talks about a cost and an income on that. And so if you have, you know, if you have a lot of your own customers using that ATM, well, it's not going to cost you. But if you're transacting for another bank, there's a cost for you and a payaway cost as well. So there's, again, ATMs are, are a profit machine or a loss machine and the decision will be taken on that and then you know to maintain that infrastructure and then the IT behind it 
uh, they look at it and decide, well, you know what, here's somebody else that commercially can provide that service uh, for us. And I think that was fine, but before then, this nonsense notion of being charged a flat rate then to, as John said earlier on, to withdraw your own money. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks um, Just before I finish up, um, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in the Bank of England, you know, there's been floating ideas about digital currency and the move away from banking as such and the central banks providing the sort of the digital currency process. And the fact that you're saying everybody from Amazon to PayPal to whatever they happens to be are sort of taking over a lot of what used to be in sort of traditional banking functions. And again, this push again. Has there been any indication that the banks should be looking at making sure they are the last facility on the high street or the last banking facility in the high street as a method of countering sort of the real revolution that's going on, particularly within AI and within the financial services sector? Because the banking system itself, unless it rapidly changes what it's on offer, is going to find itself both sort of priced out of the market and it's going to find itself sort of being squeezed even more as people, if you're not there, if you're not providing a service on the high street, not only am I going elsewhere, I'm not going to another bank, I'm going to an entirely different method of sort of getting financing. So has there been any indication there, either within the unions or with the banks themselves, that they're actually looking at this? Because there is a revolution on its way. And I've, you know, every person from every bank I've talked to, uh, I, most of them seem to be spending their heads stuck in the sand over about what's actually happening. Yet, if you listen to what the Bank of England have been saying recently and how often they've been trialling this whole idea of sort of move towards digital currency, I've, you know, it fills me with a concern that our banks themselves haven't realised that probably their best way of survival is going to be establishing themselves as being an essential part of the high street. Because if that's the case, you know, it'll be very difficult to get rid of them. But if they're not there, they're just another sort of financial provider out there, and in the route to the whoever can cut their costs the most, they're not going to win. I think there's an ongoing debate in, in relation to the transformation, and consolidation is part of that in, in terms of, and equally, <laughs> uh, a lot of the, the big banks across uh, the globe have legacy IT systems, and you're competing with uh, other entities that maybe are, are seen to be a bit more agile and, and, and so forth. There's other aspects in, in terms of you know, uh, security and uh, regulation and, and so forth. Some of these uh, entities are regulated in, in you know, Eastern European uh, states and, and so forth. Ireland regulated where they do business with us. And, and so that is an area that, that I think there has been a degree of focus on in, in relation to it, that we're not talking about like with like. I think it is a challenge for the, the main banks in, in, in terms of that. But they have one strength over the likes of, of those digital uh, entities, and that's their people uh, and the strength of their people. And mm -hmm. time after time again, surveys have shown that people may not like the bank as an entity, but has a lot of affiliation with the staff and the bank branch. Uh, and so that is a big differentiator that the others can't compete on. And I think that's the, the uh, piece I think that the banks aren't uh, paying enough attention to is the strength of their people, uh, the skills that people have in lending 
uh, are very strong skills, and uh, retaining those skills in, in the community and in the sector is really important, uh, so that we all have access appropriately to credit as, as we require it. Uh, and uh, so I think that, that that's the balance of that uh, debate, and uh, there's you know, one or two studies being, being identified in terms of, of, of the challenges, and again, whole swathes of the population being left behind in a, a, a situation like you, like you say, that you don't have access, maybe not even to an ATM mm -hmm. uh, on your high street, uh, and that the only access that you can get is to a, a digital entity, uh, which is of little good to you, you know, in a situation where you need cash to do your, your business, whatever that business uh, I, is. I was always struck being in Dublin when the Ulster Bank had its IT meltdown, and a lot of the members of staff that they just got rid of they had to sort of beg them to come back because they're the only people who knew how to keep the system running. And it just shows how much a thin veneer there is actually there of sort of knowledge of how the system actually works. And uh, I think that was sort of one of the most telling things. Uh, but, sorry, John, Sharon, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you very much indeed for a very informative evidence session. Look, um, one of the things you asked us was help support the establishment of a, a banking forum. I'll just put that to the committee at the moment. Are we happy to agree to help support the banking forum? Do I have any dissenting voices? Uh, no, we will be delighted to help you with the banking forum as well. Uh, the next thing, just before we go, uh, sort of, I think uh, uh, I would like us to call on the minister to join with us, to join with your call about stopping branch closures. Uh, during the pandemic, and particularly the issues about the sort of the last banking facility in the town or village or whatever it is as well, and we will write to the uh, we will write to the minister in those terms. If the committee are agreeable to that, all those in favour say aye. Aye. Any, any against? There we go. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thank you for the invitation here in such a prestigious building. It's been a, a, an honour and privilege to No, it's just a joy to actually have so. people, real people in front of the committee again. You're, you're the first in 16 months. <laughs> yes. Be safe, but thank you very much. More, at least for our guests. Say again? What was that, Matthew? I was just saying, I hope we at least give our guests some water or some yes. hospitality. Yes, we have. Yeah. 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 Nothing stronger. Yeah. Thank you very much again. It's Jim's. Jim's not on the call anymore, so do you want me to have a vote on whether we could have coffee and biscuits, Matthew? Is that what you want? <laughs> Jim doesn't make comments. My button's on maybe lemon barley water, no? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear that. So maybe lemon barley water since it's Wimbledon. Oh, lemon <laughs> barley water. Okay, sir. Okay. Okay, Tim. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Tim, if we move on to the next item on the agenda, number ele item 11, uh, correspondence. Uh, we look at the correspondence index. We've got, unfortunately, we've got 13 items of received correspondence on page 421. The first item is the NISRA publication of sickness, aptness in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. You're asked to note the NISRA publication of sickness, aptness on page 426. Uh, Peter has sum summarised the key statistics. A number of the working days lost fell by about a quarter in 2021, with the percentage of NICS staff with no six days increasing from about half to around 70%, which is to be welcome, though a higher proportion of lost days were owing due to long-term absence. The reduction in six, day, six sick days in 2021 compared to the previous five years is generally greater amongst the lower grades and among female staff and among staff who have been in post for more than three years, 
over 24 years old and less than 55 years old. COVID accounted for around for about 10% of absences. Stress and anxiety was easily the most common cause of absence, with about 40% plus. The Department for Communities and Department for Justice are the departments with the highest sickness absence, with 21.4% of prison grade staff having had long-term sickness absence. 10.8% of NICS staff have had long-term sickness absence on an average of three calendar months, with the most common cause being anxiety and stress. Um, I think it's quite important to note that, but I would also like us to share this data and information with the Justice Committee and also with the Justice Minister, because I think it's quite important. When you read something, it says the highest sickness absence of 21.4% is in prison-grade staff having had long-term sickness absence. And bear in mind the evidence we have had uh, and correspondence reference uh, the changes, potential changes that the department were seeking on pensions and the yeah. definition of it. I think that's quite an important thing to do if we were to be both content to note the, uh, what is said, but also to uh, pass this information to the Justice Committee and the Justice Minister if we would be in agreement. Are we in agreement? Agreed. Thank you. Moving on to the next item, Departmental Sons NICS uh, competitions. Members asked to note on page 495 for response from the Department NICS competitions. The Department again declines to provide information on the outworkings of the recent AO, SO and DP competitions, and that is because they are still ongoing, do I understand, Peter? Still open. So they refuse to give us any information because they are still open. And when do these um, uh, competitions open? They opened in 2019, at least one of them opened in 2019, the SO and the DP, I think. Okay. Uh, we'd sought committee, uh, we sought clarity as to whether the recent large-scale competitions had gone some way to address these problems. The answer to that, we do not know. The information provided shows that, for example, the DPs, the large majority of applicants, were internal. More external applicants will be required in order to address recorded unfair participation. The Department will not provide information on the outcomes of these co competitions, indicating they are to remain open from December 2019 until October 2022 as a consequence of the pandemic. Um, are we content to note, bearing in mind, I think we've got NICS HR coming in say, since September? Or October, yes. October, October. And also, uh, just talking about who we would like to see, by which stage we should have a permanent secretary or the temporary permanent secretary will have been there long enough to have his or her feet under the table. So we are scheduled, the committee is scheduled to hear about the business plan and the annual report and accounts at the end of September. So it will be, hold on, they've told me something about this recently. I think the uh, new, I think I'm right in saying the new permanent secretary competition is being delayed. So it will be the interim who we will see. Right. I think I've been okay. told that informally. Sorry, Chair, I should have told you before. Okay. No, that's fine. That's all right. Well, we, we, we find out who the, um, so Matthew managed to elude from the uh, head of the Northern Civil Service through <laughs> 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 commentary who, who, who our replacement was going to be. So we didn't know that. Okay. So are we content to note and get, uh, get some more detail on that in the early autumn? Are we agreed? Yes. Agreed. A ministerial con uh, correspondence review of NICS uh, recruitment. Members asked to consider at page 514 ministerial correspondence advising of a review of NICS recruitment, indicating that recommendations and a revised policy framework would be available by the end of the summer. Are we content to seek a briefing from the Department on the recommendations uh, when we restart? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, vacancies in the Department for the Economy. Members are also asked to note consider correspondence from the Committee for the Economy at page 518. 
highlighting reported issues in respect of vacancies in the Department for Economy. Are members content to forward the ministerial correspondence on the review of NICS recruitment and on the AO, SO and DP competitions to that committee? Are we agreed? Agreed. Uh, item 6, NICS Injuries Benefit Scheme. Members asked to note at page 519 a further departmental update on the consultation on changes to the NICS Injury Benefit Scheme. The Department provides information on the cash paid for injury benefits, which is not recharged to employers in 2021, an additional £2.6 million on top of the £3.9 million, which is recharged to departments. Members are advised that the Northern Ireland Audit Office produced a related report in March 2020, which the PAC has discharged to the Finance Committee. Are we content to note the correspondence ahead of the briefing on the consultation in September? Agreed. Uh, important item here, 11.7, Building Fire Safety Programme. Members are asked to also note on page 553, clarification from the Department in respect to the Building Fire Safety Programme. The Department indicates that there may be high-rise buildings requiring cladding replacement that may or may not be known to their landlords and residents. The Department is to undertake a scoping exercise in order to determine the affected buildings over 18 metres in height. The Minister will then su- will seek support from the Executive to fund the cladding replacement. It appears the Department is still seeking clarity on which Department will have policy responsibility for this going forward. Are we content to note for now, and emphasise the word for now because this is an area that the Committee has had a considerable degree of interest in, and seek an update yeah. on the scoping exercise as soon as possible? I think we do need I think we do need that because I mean it's just the you know, the sentence some some high rise apartment buildings with unsafe cladding have been brought to the minister's attention throughout twenty twenty one is uh, clearly an unsafe is it clearly a, you know we've been looking at some of this stuff but yeah, I mean I, so yes we do need to understand what that means and exactly what that um, what what the, the level of exposure is quite. Uh, I think urgently. Um, I'm obviously duty bound also to point that the, uh, for very obvious reasons, Claire Hanna is no longer in MLA. Yes, I know. I noted that. Yeah, yeah. I did send that back. Shame. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Pat, go sure. ahead. Uh, Matthew, do you know who took her place? <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. Uh, sorry, Matthew. Yeah. yeah. I don't um, know. That's not relevant. Uh, Claire Olds, forgive She's going to hire. Yeah. 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 Just on a more serious note, I would quite like, as our committee, to write to the department, bearing in mind the interest we've been taking this, and say that we retain a close interest in this, and we would like them to expedite the scoping exercise to determine affected buildings over 18 metres in height, and also to be fully cognisant of the information that seems to be coming out virtually every day now from the the outcomes of the Grenville inquiry. I think it would be uh, our committee because of we've you know we've raised this on quite a few occasions, and I must admit it's the one thing as being sort of the chairman of this committee that I have been quite um, nervous about about sort of the building fire safety regulations and what we're doing about this. I would like quite like us to do that so that at least the department knows that we as a committee are fully behind them in doing this. But we need to expedite this this scoping exercise if we are agreed. 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 Okay, thank you. Um, again, next item of the agenda 11.8, departmental correspondence consultation on changing building regulations. 
Uh, members are asked to consider on page 555 departmental correspondence advising on a 12-week consultation on changing building regulations guidance in order to introduce a requirement for changing places toilets. And I know from many of us, and we'll be talking to our local council groups and the rest of it, this is an area of significant interest at the moment amongst local councils. And I know many local councils have uh, already uh, raised motions and are looking at how they adapt their own premises. The new guidance would affect new buildings or existing buildings which undergo substantial changes. It appears to affect the assembly, assembly, entertainment and recreation buildings with a capacity of 350 people or more. Smaller buildings associated with the site used for assembly, entertainment and recreation, such as theme park zoos and venues for sport and exhi- exhibitions, with a capacity of 2,000 people or more. Shopping centres and retail parks with a gross floor area of over 30,000 square metres. Retail floor uh, premises with a gross floor, floor area of uh, 2,500 square metres. Leisure and retail and sports facilities, hospitals and primary care centres, and cemetery, cemetery and crematorium buildings. Uh, it's expected the cost is around 25000 per uh, CPT, with hospital provisions costing more. The consultation advises that the char- change to guidance will not require the facilities to be maintained after 12 months after installation. I think that's... I don't quite understand that, because obviously when you install that it is a public good. It's important, particularly as I understand and what I've been briefed upon, um, for the community and have the community facility. But obviously, as part of the consultation process, that you know you would be able not only to install them, but you'd also have to be able to maintain them for a given period of time. One would have thought. As any other members of the committee got any views? Just on that, I've seen that word maintained, and I thought it was incorrect. But I appreciate your point. Now, I was talking about that earlier. Yeah, I can't understand that. No. Can we ask the question? Yeah. I, 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 would, I would quite like to go back to them and ask the, ask the question. But just, just I will write back to the department as the committee has indicated. But just to advise, it's the building regulations, as the member well knows, um, only applies when it's a new building or uh, an existing building is going through a significant change. But once it's done, it's done, and the regulations then don't re- don't oblige the building operator to maintain um, the changing places toilet. Why would you put it in and not maintain it? I don't know, but. It's just that it does indicate in the documentation that, uh, the, the, that how, that's how the building regulations work. They only go so far as to require it to be installed but not maintained after 12 months. But I'll write back to the department seeking clarification. I think, uh, I think we as a committee are quite happy, would quite like to ask that question. It would be good for our education as well mm-hmm. if that isn't the case, but I think it's important. Okay, are we agreed? Right, thanks. Okay. Uh, 11, uh, item number nine, scoring of uh, social value and procurement. Members are asked to note at page 694, ministerial correspondence indicating that the minister was to make a statement regarding scoring of social value and procurement. The statement is included in page 22 of the table items. Are we content to note? Note. 10. All right, OK. Report into the executive budget process. Members are asked to also note on page 695, an Iron audit office report into the executive budget process. PAC is to consider this report and thus has primacy. Are we content to note? Noted. So noted. Public Accounts Committee, primacy in respect to the Northern Audit Office report into the budget process. Uh, members are also asked to note on page 742, correspondence from the Public Accounts Committee indicating that it is to retain primacy in respect to the Northern Audit Office report into the budget process. Are we content to note? Content. Agreed. Do we want to forward that to the 
independent fiscal councils just they're aware of the processing or is it i think they're the department's very well aware of it um <laughs> but i will uh, i'll be i'll be writing to them anyway with our report so i could advise them for their information that the audit office report into the budget process has been published yep okay excellent yes please uh, next item, Committee for Communities Raise Paper and uh, High Street Task Force. Members are also asked to note on page 745 a copy of correspondence from the Department for Communities responding to queries in respect of the Raise Paper and the High Street Task Force. Are we content to note? To note. Uh, item number 13, Departmental Response Cost of the Victims Pension Scheme. Uh, this is the strategic business case. It's not the detailed business case. And you'll already see that we've raised that issue with the department when we came through. Members are asked to consider at page 795 a response to the committee's queries regarding costs of the victim's pension scheme. The department has provided the strategic business case. This is not the final business case. It indicates that benefits can only be awarded in respect of injuries in the period of the 1st of the 1st, 66 to the 12th of the 4th, 2010. Or 2010, yeah. yeah. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is to issue guidance to the Scheme Board advising on the withholding of payments relating to unspent convictions and other exceptional circumstances. Operational costs are shown at pages 810 are estimated to be 45, 45, yes. 45 million over seven years, with around 2 million per annum for administration and around 2 million per annum for assessment of victims. And obviously that's intended <coughs> with capita. So I think if anybody who has had a recent uh, debate in the Assembly will realise that there are, I think, many members, uh, maybe not the Justice Minister, but I would imagine many other members have their real concerns about capita on this issue as well. But that's where it is. You'll also issue, when you look in detail at the report, um, it talks quite a lot about sort of when it goes down the line. And I raised the issue about the salary for the president of the of of the um, scheme. Um, How do you play? I I I find I, I must admit I would like some detail on how they come up with a figure of three hundred and fifty thousand. Um, if it's a if it's deemed to be the salary of a Supreme Court judge plus pension contributions, that might get it close to that figure. I presume. But I would be interested for a bit more detail on that. I think our committee would be. I've, you know, we need to have an exceptional pe person in charge of this. But it also says in the amplifying notes, it's also the same as historical uh, uh, abuse inquiry, uh, investigations, abuse yep. or HIA, sorry. Transport, yeah. Yeah, and that's a similar sort of thing. So I just want to make sure that we've got it right. Now, I'm not against high-quality individuals. I think we should have high-quality individuals here. But I just the figure seems to be excessive and what I would probably like to see is a breakdown of that cost and see what it's in comparison to and I think that is one of the issues we need to do that as well. Are we content to share this response with the Committee for Justice and the Executive Office as well because I think these are quite important? Yep. Agreed. Okay. Uh, we move on to item 14, Department Response Gender Budgeting. Members are asked to note page 816, a Department Response and the Use of Gender Budgeting. Are we content to note? Content to note. Composite request members are asked to consider the composite request at page 819. Is the committee content that the composite request is an accurate, complete record, and are we agreed? Agreed. Uh, move on to uh, 1116 is the parental bereavement bill. That's in tabled items. 
Members are asked to note at page 30 correspondence from the Committee for the Economy regarding the committee stage of the parental bereavement leave and pay bill. Are we content to note? Yeah. Uh, final one is ministerial directions. You will notice members are asked to note at page 31 of tabled items correspondence from the department regarding ministerial directions. And you remember this is in response to the question we asked what was an ex- uh, minister- executive direction and what was a ministerial direction and what was a ministerial direction if it did involve finance. Um, so we wanted to get some clarity on that. Uh, I can't say that we've got any. Uh, the department indicates that there is no plans to publish ministerial directions which do not refer to managing public money. Thus, committees may have limited visibility of these kinds of directions which may or may not be published in departmental annual reports and accounts. Um, I still need to know what the definition is of a ministerial direction that doesn't involve in some way finance. And if it's a ministerial direction on policy, which can be the only thing I can think of, um, a permanent secretary shouldn't be having to be, you know, he should be following ministerial policy. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm still none the clearer about this. So I would quite like for us to have some clarity from the Department of Finance on exactly what the definitions of ministerial direction on finance issues are. And what minister or sort of managing public money is the key thing, mm-hmm. and Chair, what other Mr. ministerial Chair. directions are. I uh, made one ministerial direction when I was Minister of Health, uh, and I saw a few others. Um, it's impossible to make a ministerial direction without some financial implications. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. and sort of that, that, that's the bit that's that's the bit I genuinely can't get to the point, because you give a ministerial direction in perspective of the permanent secretary as the accounting officer to say that you have to do something that is out with the bounds of sort of the finance bill or the financing provisions? Mine was an insulin pumps for type 1 diabetes sufferers, so it wasn't a very controversial issue, but it certainly was expensive. And uh, the point is that they're hiding here. I mean, they don't want to reveal these. It's as simple as that. They're, they're, They're trying to pretend that they're not financial implications. They have to be, because had they fallen within policy, they already been budgeted for. The one I ruled on hadn't been budgeted for. I felt it was simply had to be introduced for diabetes patients in Northern Ireland. And I had to bring the permanent sector in and say, I'm overruling you, and I'm making a ministerial uh, statement on this, and we're going to have this. And it cost X million pounds. So, so therefore, and I was prepared to do it also on meningitis B vaccines, had we not reached agreement from the executive to pay for it. So, therefore, it would be very, very revealing to see how many of these there are and how the cost of them. And I think they're trying to avoid transparency here. And I have no difficulty with mine being published. And, and why should other ministers not be the same? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it means, it's, it's, Chair, if I may, it's worth saying um, uh, the, some of this initial, the, the, the most recent version of this conversation started in the Public Accounts Committee where we asked a question about ministerial directions uh, and whether all of the COVID-related ministerial directions had been notified and put up on a website centrally. Then turned out that there were many directions that hadn't actually even been formally notified to the uh, audit office, which is uh, which is the, the, the formal process for ministerial directions involves um, uh, the audit office being notified. Mm-hmm. So um, my suggestion, so we, we then established um, 
the, the, the audit office established that multiple departments, in particular the economy department now, that's kind of uh, understandable given the volume of things they had to sign off, but uh, were guilty of not going through the processes properly last year. Um, and, there, and so the Public Accounts Committee is still currently working through effectively a backlog of directions to, that we to scrutinise. My, so my, my suggestion, I suppose, is if you want a, a clearer or perhaps an alternative explanation of how different categories of ministerial direction work, that you as chair could write to the audit office for their uh, version uh, of the truth yeah. for the record. Yeah. So what you're saying is that even the audit office don't have a list of all the ministerial directions? No, they do now. All right. The problem was last year. The problem was that last year in the context of COVID nineteen and all the various schemes that were put in place, uh, processes weren't followed consistently to notify the audit office. So more than one department, but particularly the economy department, did not notify the audit office as they were obliged to do. As part of the process, there is a there's a, a kind of checklist for a ministerial direction to happen, uh, and once it's been signed off by, first of all, the, the minister in question, the accounting officers got what they need. They then obviously uh, get agreement from the executive itself, um, or from finance minister, uh, not the executive, the finance minister, and then they the final stage is notifying the audit office and the auditor, so the, the controller and auditor general is supposed to be notified and he wasn't notified of them all last year because the process didn't quite work. So uh, all I'm saying is if you, if you think it would help the committee to have a clear explanation of how the process is supposed to work, one way of doing it might be to write to the CNAG uh, rather than simply the um, yeah. finance department. Okay. Uh, committee, are we content if I do that on our behalf? Absolutely. Agreed. Thank you. Uh, if we move on then, are members uh, content with the forward work programme at page 832, just to say that the autumn is going to be particularly busy? Are we agreed? Yep, good choice. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Any other business? Queen. Uh, just before we go, I just want to say to everybody, thank you very much indeed for all the hard work this term. Uh, it's still going to be a very busy summer. I know there's a lot going on, but uh, thank you very much indeed for all your support. Thank you very much indeed to Peter and all the team for all the hard work that you've done. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all on the 1st of September at 1400 here in the Senate Chamber. Uh, hopefully face-to-face. Uh, -to -face. Yeah. Uh, and will Paul everybody back? <laughs> okay, everybody. Thanks very much indeed. Shut down now. Thank you. Senate Chamber. Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme.